Welcome, listeners, to time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4, 6 states, my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge, but we as a people can turn this around. Proverbs 4, 7 states, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Though I get and get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to join the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com which is the homepage and catch the live stream. At that location, you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the live stream there also. You can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I. B-I-T-U-M-I forward slash time for an awakening. Catch the live broadcast there. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free app. And then that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon and you can stream the live broadcast into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. And that Facebook search engine, just type in Time for an Awakening radio program. There you always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening radio program. With a fan page on Facebook and Time for an Awakening media is there always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening media, interesting articles that you can read downloaded later times to share with your friends. Also check out that time for an awakening marketplace and our partnership with the BB to me, always interesting things in the marketplace all the time, uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 8.08 here on this chilly Friday evening here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in freestyle Friday mode here on the Time for an Awakening radio program. Give us a call. You can get involved in the conversation. Anything that's on your mind, just throw it in the pot. We can talk about it. But we'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator, 
our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 2444 That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not what you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother 
From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot. Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 813 here in the city of Philadelphia, and we're in freestyle Friday mode on Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program, let me welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia, 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. What about yourself? Everything's good. Everything's good. Uh, getting a little chilly. It's supposed to go down to 30-something degrees at night. They got the freeze yeah. warnings out, Richard, so I know what that means for you. I ain't going to let people know. I'm, I'm tired of letting y'all know. But, <laughs> you know, and I don't have, not that I know of, I don't have no bad blood. You know, I just don't like the cold. <laughs> You know, and being being growing up in Philly, that's, uh, it's it's interesting that I have such an aversion. But I, I don't play courses, mm. no thing. I, mean, I look I look at the what clothes people wear in Montana, uh, in Alaska, mm. and places like that. When we're talking about the cold, that's the kind of long johns, coats, <laughs> sweaters. Yeah. That's what I'm into. I don't know what y'all into. Oh man, yeah. Well. <laughs> A lot of things happening, Richard. I'm telling you, this week, uh, although it's on your mind, I'll let you get started first. But uh, go ahead, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I'm I, I find myself um, reflecting. You know, I've had a busy week um, in relationship to um, doing um, historical tours and preparing for historical tours. Um, so, and looking at the 17th and 18th century and what black folks have been able to do, especially as it relates to, you know, the politics of, of our lives in this, in this country. So, um, uh, you know, the election just went, <clears throat> came and gone. And I don't know. Um, and I, and I would like the, um, time for awakening audience to help me out in relationship to, you know, on this freestyle Friday, um, just get an understanding because I get the impression there's, on one side, there's a lot of black candidates that are being elected and they're not only they're ideologically um, different, like they could be a part of the, the Democratic Party, but you get the impression that they're still not um, and looking at um, social, you know, social black folks, social welfare and economic welfare. Right. And then you, I see um, candidates that are being elected in black candidates that are being elected in the Republican party. And I'm wondering, you know, and they're um, somewhat pu pushing the, the identity politics and I call it an identity in a history identity and somewhat being supportive or, or a part of that, um, you know, dealing with the critical race theory. Then I see black folks who are lobbying, you know, um, organizing towards, um, you know, the reparations and, and those new formations that, that are moving towards um, either maybe even trying to uh, create a competing bill, um, um, put a competing bill in the um, political process as it relates to reparations or, or, or trying to um, reform, if not, you know, kill, kill. And then it's the others that are, are demanding that the, and, you know, on the other side of, like that, 
demanding the um pol- you know the reparations bill specifically um that it you know these black elected officials um come out and in that committee and push this bill through so it can um the HR 40 bill so what i'm saying is that i i see a, a i see a what's that a, a a panoply of 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 black folks all you know all over the place in relationship to um the political you know political movement that relates to um you know supposedly relates to us you know here on the ground i mean even i think it was two weeks ago in pennsylvania they had and i, I think i mentioned it before that frederick Douglass conference for three hours of a black elected officials and and the like and i'm not hearing some centralized understanding um of what we're trying to achieve and i'm not seeing and maybe i can see and that's why i'm asking time for awakening audience to help me um see um you know the political machinery and asking what is going to happen as we move towards the political analysis towards the midterm election. So that's, you know, I'm asking a I'm 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 asking a lot of questions for us. I guess I'm having a lot of questions, Ellie. Um and that's what I'm kind of, you know, um putting down and wondering if at least if not myself, but we as a people um have a, have done enough political education um amongst us to make the right kind of analysis of what is actually going on. You know, a um, <clears throat> couple things uh, in relation to that, Richard. And uh, uh, later on in the program, uh, Brother Khalid Rahim may join us to kind of talk about a little bit of this. Uh, Khalid Rahim, the organizer and founder of the New African People's Party, because it's certain things that have happened during this process, Richard, that gives us clues to what we can do or what's going on. Um, and it's a couple of things I want to mention in relation to that. And I'll, I'll put a little marker there in my mind to, uh, to kind of come back to it. Uh, but, Richard, let me let me mention this first uh, in relation to uh, things going on. Um, I think the trial for Amon Arbery, his murder, started today. Um, in in uh, in Georgia, I think that's in Glen Glen County. I don't know what city, but I think it's in Glen County, Georgia, where it has this has started, and um. I think it's one black juror uh, that's uh, that's that's on the jury panel. Uh, before I get back to the political uh, subject, let me read uh, what's stated here, and this is from a published report uh, on Thursday. Uh, after a long and contentious jury selection process and. Uh, Coastal County, Georgia, in preparation for the trial of Amon Arbery's killing, a panel of 12 people were chosen on Wednesday, consisting of one uh, black member and 11 whites. The jury was selected after a two-and-a-half-week selection process 
that ended with prosecutors for the state accusing defense attorneys of disproportionately striking black jurors and basing some of their strikes on race. Judge Timothy Wamsley said that the defense appeared to be discriminatory in the selection uh, of the jury, but that the case uh, will go forward. Uh, According to the judge, this court has found that there appears to be intentional discrimination, Wamsley said Wednesday. The court heard arguments for more than two hours about why the defense struck potential jurors before Wamsley ultimately denied the state's motion and ruled that there was valid reasons for why the jurors was dismissed. One of the challenges I think counsel recognize in this case is the racial overtones. This is sort of a continuation of a conversation that I think will continue for a long time with respects to this case, said the judge, but added that in Georgia, all the defense needs to do is provide that legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific, and related reason for why they struck a juror, and he said the defense meant that burden. (laughs) Uh, In Glenn County, where the trial is taking place, more than 26% of the 85,000 residents are black and about 69% are white, according to the 2019 census. Uh, Richard, the... um, The judge said that uh, um, that it appears to be uh, discrimination in the way the jury was picked, but he's going to allow the trial to proceed. Mm. He acknowledged it, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, they argued for two and a half hours in relation to it. Mm. But then he used the law of Georgia to say now in his own opinion he says well it's discrimination the way these jurors are picked but then he leans on the law uh let me read it again uh one of the challenges that i think the council recognized in this case is the racial overtones this is sort of the continuation of a conversation that i think will continue for a long time um the judge said he had it in Georgia. All the defense needs to do is provide a legitimate, non-discriminatory, clear, reasonably specific, and related to reason to why they struck a juror. And he said the defense meant that. So <laughs> to kick to kick off all the blacks, but one was a reasonable, uh, uh, you know, assessment to why they did it, even though he said he think it was discriminatory. And, you know, wouldn't from the and I know you consider it uh, you, you, you consider it mislabeled, but as far as the theory grow, goes and, and this could be considered in my mind a good example. Right. As far as the theory goes of critical race theory, what he's saying is and this is a blatant from a judge is saying the law of Georgia. And way it's constructed 
can be able to um, put uh, a group of people at a disadvantage. And the group of people it puts at a disadvantage is black people. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Clearly. Clearly that's what he's saying. Right. You know. And he's trying to wash his hands of it. Right. That I know it, but it ain't nothing I can do about it. Yeah, but But, wait, 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 wait a minute, Richard. As the judge, now I'm no lawyer. I don't, but you know, I can understand what's written. As a judge, he could have said, no, I'm not going to allow this to move forward like that. But he fell back on the law, basically saying, well, the law is racist and I'm not going to fight what's written in the law. That's the point I'm making. Mm -hmm. That's the point of critical race theory is saying within the law. And a lot of people get in that is about history. Yes. So it is about history, but the, the theory is saying, which has to be proven, proven evidence. And this can be used as an example of the evidence that shows the law is specifically set up that it can be used against a, a group of people, people. Mm-hmm. that's, you know, in relationship to their getting fair representation in the jury process. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what that's what critical race theory is it looking and that because it's in the law, that makes it systemic. Certainly. Right. But a, not okay. according and, to not according to Kamala Harris, Tim right. Scott and others. It's not. Right. But it's clearly systemic. It, it, and if you want to find out how does a systemic law comes into place, you have to look at the history of how did the law get past which gets into well if we become more informed in the history then we'll get to see who were the people that because laws don't just drop out of the air correct me if I'm wrong Elliot somebody has to push through the legislators legislation regardless of be in the judiciary whether the legislative body or even in these here bureaucracies, or even in companies. Somebody said, we are creating law, and this is the law. Now, in that person's head, it would be, well, we believe the law should be constructed this way. They might have said that while they were deliberating, but we would only know that if we look at the history of how the law got into place. So here's the connection between the law and history, and here, where, as it relates to black folks saying, or at least black, a black legal scholar saying, we should look at the law to see how it is being used to harm black folks um, in in this society. Um, and, and that that law makes it systemic. And it seems the pushback is saying, no, we can't do that. And they ain't even at a high school level. They're using a high school and critical race theory ain't even done in high school. It's done at the collegiate level. <laughs> Undergrad, grad, you know. We don't even want y'all to be looking at it. But we definitely don't want your children to be looking at it. I just thought that was a, it's a good, interesting case that you brought up as it relates to that. Yeah, but, uh, you know, in certain cases, and especially these high-profile cases, uh we can talk about it, but you really should have 
the quote unquote leadership amplifying the contradiction, but they're not saying you got a whole state full of so-called up and coming uh, black uh, political stars, Abrams, Warnock and others. They haven't said anything about it. And if you look at the, now that particular published report says that 63% of Glen County is white. 26% is black. I think the overall population of Glen County is 85,000 people. So if you do the math and round it off, 53,000 of those people are white and 22,000 are black. Uh, now, according to this few, now check this out because we talked about this before when they was talking about how Abrams and them rallied all these black voters mm-hmm. to give you the impression that blacks wasn't voting in that state before and they needed to be educated. Mm-hmm. But if you remember, Richard, when we was talking about this, it's a number of blacks that have went to that state that just hadn't registered to vote and were there and were living there. You remember when we talked about it? Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. check out what is stated because, it, you know, after this happened, I went to that Pew site and looked up this statistic here, and I'm going to read it. It says the growth of black eligible voters in Georgia have largely been driven by migration into the state from other parts of the country, as well as from outside the United States. Between 2000 and 2019, black eligible voters who were born outside Georgia accounted for a majority of 58% of the increase in the state's black voting population. Mm. In 2019, 43% of black eligible voters in Georgia were born outside of the state. Up to 34% in 2000 over that same period. The number of black voters who were born outside of Georgia doubled while the number of blacks voters born in the state increased by just 38%. So you had 58% accounted for the majority of the voting population in Georgia. The black voting population was from outside of the state. Well, they they live in Georgia now, but they were born outside of the state. So when, if you know, listen, you hear it in Philadelphia, and I'm quite sure you hear it in other parts of the country, when blacks scream about what's happening in this justice system, what is the first thing that some of these black political leaders say, Richard? Well, if you want to change it, become a registered voter and sit on these juries. You remember, you know, I know we heard it. Right. Well, according to the statistics, Blacks have been making up the majority of the voting population in Georgia for the past 20 years mm-hmm. and blacks from outside of the state. And a large percentage of blacks here is, is a part of this county where this trial is happening. And you got one black voter, uh, one black juror sitting on the, on the voting panel because the judge admits, well, it's racist, but the law states that they didn't do it. So the trial is going forward. It's a clear contradiction there. Okay. You're not going to have it pointed out by some of those political stars. Mm-hmm. But if you understand history, understand what's going on, look at these statistics, you can see what's going on. And it's up to us to educate our children to what they're dealing with. And that's, and that's, the, that's the question of 
in that influx of migration, that influx of migration. And, and this is just an example because we, we're hearing in certain people, and, and we had uh, the, the brother House on uh, a couple of weeks ago where his um, proposal, right, is about this in-migration, you know, right? I mean, to be able to start moving into a state to take control over it. But in-migration and voting without political education, is that is that a, a recipe for power? Because to me, I'm raising another point, as you said about the politicians, shouldn't, and we have to, I'm assuming um, that in that in-migration, there's a, a professional or entrepreneurial class of folks that this should be an example of what they should be coming politically informed about in order to deal with the type of legislators that they're going to vote for. That, I don't know if that makes sense. Certainly it is. But if they're not, if no one is doing this analysis or raising the question, because I didn't, I mean, you bringing it up to me, I, I, I hadn't seen, um, you know, um, that, uh, I don't know if you had other in other places, but I, the point that you're making, I haven't seen in black media or white media, the question about how could a judge say, I know it's unfair, but I'm dealing with the law. In the, in the moment <laughs> when we're having all this political or this controversy around um, history, law, and what people, the public citizens, the next generation of children who are becoming informed should know. I didn't see, I didn't, I didn't hear it. Uh, maybe it had, maybe I, you know, I don't watch too much of popular commercial television or radio, so uh, I might've missed it. Anybody else been presenting? I have to ask it as a question. You... No, I, well, I haven't heard that. That's what I was saying before. I hadn't heard any of the so-called uh, black political leadership even point this out or talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've heard, you know, the man on the street, uh, you know, some of the grassroots folks talking about it, but uh, the people that's supposed to be talking about it and supposed to point out the contradiction and got the bully pulpit. I haven't heard them saying anything. So that's, that's, and and this is, this is something that, you know, um, in this moment, I mean, you pull out an excellent case and I'm hoping, you know, again, for this freestyle Friday, that maybe people other places will call in where they're seeing things, um, uh, in a similar in a similar manner, I'd seen um, one, and I can't remember the place. A police officer um, a few years ago that um, killed, shot shot this young uh, young man in the back, and um, you know, based off of a plea bargain um, where he's supposed to um, had gotten uh, a stiff uh, legal penalty, I think he comes out with um, three years because of a plea bargain. And it's deliberate. It was a deliberate murder, and I may be over exaggerating. I'll I'll pull up the the fact um, the fact of that case, but this is another example of how the system can be used. The laws can be used against a people, and how they're intentionally used to harm a people disproportionately. That's what I get out of. You know, this 
um, what you what you just described as far as this um, thing in, in Atlanta. But it's a larger thing about political power that we have to deal with, too. Now, let me mention something in relation to what you first addressed. And because uh, Khalid told me that he had a meeting at 730, but hopefully he'll join us before the program's over. Mm-hmm. That race in, it's a couple of races I want to point out. One in New York, and I'm not talking about New York City, I'm talking about Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that happened in New, in New Jersey to keep yeah. in mind. And this race in Virginia. And it goes to what you were saying, Richard, but it shows you that our people are not sleep. Now, I want to read from two published reports. Uh, this first one is out of the New York Times because the Republican the governor beat out this Democrat. Uh, and that was after Obama, Warnock, Abrams, and others, and Kamala Harris went to Virginia to campaign for the Democrat. Um, read from this published report here. It says black voters in Virginia refuse to be blamed for Democrats' defeats. Uh, Newport News, Virginia. The Democrats across Virginia expressed profound disappointment on Wednesday at the Republicans romped in an unlikely victory in the governor's race. An ominous sign for the Democratic Party ahead of next year's midterm elections. But one group refused to be blamed for the party's poor showing, black voters. Uh, the fear about black turnout and the lack of enthusiasm did not materialize on Tuesday's results. As former Governor Terry McAuliffe, a Democrat, ran close to expected totals in the state's majority black areas. Instead, black state leaders and voters who backed McAuliffe said the results were a sign that the party could not rely on black voters to cover its cratering totals in more white areas of the state, particularly in rural communities that voted heavily for Glenn Yorkin the Republican businessman who won the, won the governor's race. I believe that black voters are easily the first target when things don't go uh, how they expect it to go, says Marsha Price, a member of the Virginia House of Delegates. It's a trash, uh, it's a trash take to look at us and not the, uh, the middle, she said. Uh, Yorkin was more palatable than Trump and they were willing to take a chance on him. Price's words reflect the sense among the state's black political class that communities, that black communities are often blame when Democrats lose. At the grassroots level, voters in Newport News also said that their support for McAuliffe did not mean that they were satisfied with the performance of Democrats in Washington. Several voters cited a radio advertisement that had been playing on local stations saying black voters should not back McAuliffe because Democrats cared about black communities only during election seasons. They rejected the ad's plea to stay home. Hold on a second. They rejected the ad's plea to stay home, but said the general theme resonated and they urged Democrats and Congress to, to pass bold legislation uh, on Biden's core prompt campaign promises. 
including police reform and economic investment in black communities. A lot of people are upset with Biden, says William Joyner, a 54-year-old black Democrat. He added, Biden made promises to black people that hasn't been kept. Tony McBride, a 68-year-old black Democrat who also voted for McAuliffe, said that there was a sense among black voters that they were voting for the lesser of two evils. So, Richard, you got a, um, just like the the, uh, folks said, that when Democrats lose in these certain areas, that black people are always blamed. Mm. Now, check this out. Now, see, now this is seeds of what I'm talking about. I'm going to throw this out to Khalid, uh, reach out to uh, uh, some of the Black is Black Coalition, uh, 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 Brother Yeshitelli and others, about, and in fact, I know they're watching these things. You still with me? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, the... um, now, now, check this out. Listen to this poll. This is dealing in Virginia now. And tell me if this is not a sign uh, a spark can lead to a flame, so to speak. It says a uh, new poll shows that 20% of black voters in Virginia have no political affiliation days before the election. Virginia State is making sure students are prepared for a career in politics. A new poll from Virginia State University shows black voters are not pleased with the current state of politics. The newly developed John Langston Institute for African American Political Leadership at Virginia State University released their findings uh, from their Black Virginia Voters 2020 poll. The poll is available on Virginia State University's website, and participants of the study were Black voters ages 18 to 60, with various educational backgrounds from all across the state. The results from the poll showed that most African-American voters are ready to see change in politics, the findings show that black voters in Virginia strongly believe that the needs of their people aren't being heard on the local, state, or federal levels. Only 24% of those who participated in the poll agreed, of, agreed or strongly agreed that black issues are directly being addressed by their elected officials. According to the poll, black Virginians make up Uh, a little more than 90% of the total population of the state, and arguably African-Americans are the most reliable constituents group within the Democratic Party. The report showed that 97% of the participants of the study said that the the candidates that they supported in the past were Democrat, but more than 20% identified as independent or no party affiliation. Uh, wait a minute. In, uh, 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 JMI, which is the uh, um, John Mercer Langston Institute at Virginia State University, 
said that black Virginia polls shed light on the current views of black voters in the state. However, uh, the Institute said that their work is not finished and will host an event that will address an array of topics such as uh, how to run for office, black political analysis, the role of state and local government, research in the political field, and networking uh, with African-Americans interested in the political field. So you've got young blacks at a uh, uh, historically black college that did a state poll among their own people from 18 to 60, and 20% of blacks in the state, just before the election, Richard, and let me read it and make it clear again to the listening audience, uh, uh, hold it. I just saw it here. Okay. Uh, more than 20% identified themselves days before the election, identified themselves as either independent or no party affiliation, which is a fertile ground, Richard, mm-hmm. for what the men have been talking about, whether it's black is back coalition whether it's what Khalid Rahim uh, is doing in Pennsylvania, whether it's what the Ujima People's Party is doing in Maryland. Fertile ground for that, Richard. Because you already have people that have already acted on what they believe. They said, I'm not registered as a Democrat. I'm not registered as a Republican. I had no party affiliation. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, and that's the, uh, that's the, where the political education should be going to. That's what, that's what I'm saying. You know, that's where, you know, even if, um, you know, the organizing for, um, you know, going into a, uh, people wanting people to join a party, um, particularly, but even, um, in spite of, um, and that's why I you know, the other week, uh, Elliot, we were on, and I said, you know, this political education, and, and I think I'm going to, that's a theme that I see generating at this point, because we can be doing that. Um, we don't have to wait for the Democratic or the Republican Party um, to, to, to call us in. Because even in the example you just read, um, what, they're, what they're going to hold, really, they're just teaching them how to, how to play the system. But they're not teaching them how power is generated to make the system work for you. That's that's what the political education like. At what area? What the, what areas are you supposed to be going in? And what I'm saying is that these kind of conversation has to be happening um, now using this you know this type of media, and we're we're allowing um, the opportunity even with in with the um, time for in this open forum, you know, um, freestyle Friday for people to be able to exchange in relationship to how do we organize? What does that politics look like? You know, it isn't just how do you run to be a a political officer? It isn't just, you know, this is how you go when you go in to vote. It's what are you voting for? What is your political ideology? What is your political philosophy? That's what's important. And that 20% is saying because of their philosophy at this point, I know that the party don't represent me. Well, and see, and that's what I'm, that's, listen, we talked about this 
uh, when Roger House was on. We've talked about this with other guests. I'm not talking about, and a lot of these other guests that have been on talking about this, it's not necessarily talking about our people becoming entrenched in this system. The, The corruption, the money, the political entrepreneurship of this system. We're talking about it in relation to cultivating leadership to be able to govern our people. Because if this, like I said before, if this system disappears tomorrow, next week, our people are still going to be here. And we need leadership that's going to represent our people. Not this foolishness that we see here that we've been involved in for however long we've been involved in politics here on a consistent basis, maybe over the past 60 years. So we do have to cultivate leadership. That's clear. Right. Now, another thing in relation to that, because sometimes we don't see what's really going on. But it's clear that something is going on. And that's why I mentioned about a lot of these men that's on the grassroots level can tap into that. Because, Richard, listen. It didn't say 1%. It didn't say uh, uh, a half of 1%. It says 20% of voters, black voters in Virginia have no party affiliation. That's thousands of people. So it's somebody on the ground that's enlightening people. Hey, listen, man, come out of that party. Uh, let's register as no party affiliate. Somebody is talking to them. And it's it's clear that this conversation is on the grassroots level because you can't have that many people doing that if if a critical mass is not being developed. You you follow what I'm saying, Richard? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So it's clear that these conversations is going on, but it's fertile ground for some of the men that have been talking about uh, independent movement in this system while we're here. That's a fertile ground. Because it's already statistics being gathered by some of our young people at Virginia State University. Now, I don't know what's going on in some of these other states where you got uh, uh, historically black colleges. But here we got work that's going on among our young people about people that's voting in their state. And they came up with statistics saying that 20 percent of black voters in Virginia don't even have a party affiliation and have come out of the Democratic Party. And I don't even know how many was registered as Republicans. Mm. But they're not registered in either party. Mm. That's showing us that there's conversations going on on the ground. We might not know who they are. Believe me, I'm going to try to find my, do my homework to find out who some of these people are that's having these conversations and bring them on so they can talk about what's going on in their particular state. And, and as we're listening, we have to listen. I mean, the, the point that we're making about that leadership, that, that one, we have to recognize that um, we as the community are the ones that are supposed to be cultivating that leadership, even to the direction, as you're saying, to these parties, right? I mean, we we can't think that these individuals, these young individuals, or some maybe even mid-age are, who are come to the conclusion that they, that this and I think you you read that statement where they said 
that they don't feel represented. That means that me, that means they don't feel that these people who are in these political positions are bringing home anything that they can. Now I hear the word is tangibles that they can recognize, if not for themselves, for others like that. But we have, as a community, have to be able to recognize what does that leadership look like? Because we can't keep putting in the same type of leadership, even if they go into a different party. I don't know if you would agree with that, Elliot. So, Well, yeah. well and, and to, in relation to what you just said, Richard, and I'll, I'll read it again, according to the poll done by the young folks at uh, Virginia State University, it says that only 24% of those who participated, uh, uh, 24% of the registered voters who st- strongly agreed that black issues are not directly being addressed by their elected officials. Mm-hmm. So 24% of the voters mm-hmm. agreed that their issues is not even being represented. Mm-hmm. 20% of them uh, have no party affiliation. So it's it's uh, listen. I'm just repeating the same thing. It's clear that these conversations is going on, right? And and and, and I'm I'm just wanted to make it understood when we're looking at and, and looking into this leadership that we're looking for people who have goals that relates to the black community, to have, who has a vision, you know, of what of what they can do or how the black community can be. When I listen uh, listen to uh, Council Alderman Barron. He has a clear vision of how his community should be. Should be. He has clear goals. They should have that leadership should have a clear understanding of the strategic objective that they're trying to achieve when they go into this political process. And that's why it's important that we understand they shouldn't be individuals. That those things have to be, they have to be, that leadership have to be cultivated by us, the community in general. I don't know if that makes sense. Certainly. Um, Well, we still got got about five more minutes so we can take a break. Um, A a couple things I wanted to mention, Richard. That race in uh, Buffalo was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a young black woman that was running uh, India Walton they said she was a socialist candidate that's the label that they put on her um, and all of a sudden uh, a guy came out of the uh, because I think she had beaten him in the primary mm-hmm. uh, but lost in the general Uh to what's his guy named Byron Brown. Um, she made a comment because I don't think she has conceded up until this point. But she made a comment that uh, Republican money and dark money had poured in mm-hmm. for her opponent to surge ahead. I don't know whether you got a chance to listen to some of the things that she had stated prior to running. No, no, I haven't. Uh, but, you know, I just thought that was interesting what she said because this guy, the, the, the guy that beat her uh, is a Democrat. Mm-hmm. But she said that Republican money and dark money had poured in uh, for this guy to uh, kind of move ahead. I, w- I wanted to get that clip. I might be able to, to, to kind of dig it out. 
when we take a break uh, in reference to what she said. But I, I thought it was interesting too. Not only what she said, but her platform in running. Uh, I don't know whether we have any callers in that area. Maybe they can shed some light on uh, the one that race up there and who she is. Um, also, we uh, see a guy, one in Pittsburgh, out there where Khalid is. Mm-hmm. Um, he was going to join us, not only talk about that particular one, but just the participation in general, period. Right. Also, Richard, in Jersey, um, two white candidates was running. One was a longtime state senator. He was upset by a truck driver. Uh, I don't know whether you saw that race over there. Yeah. And the yeah. guy, I think he put less than $1,000 into his campaign. Mm-hmm. And the guy that he beat was a 20 year, I think he had 20 years in and it was right. looking forward to, I guess, 10 or whatever. How many more? And I was in a, a um, I think it was a um, position and that state legislature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But see, I'm just talking about the, it don't take much organization or much money. Oh, wait, wait a minute. It does take organization. But the money needed in these local elections is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. See, when you're talking about statewide, uh, uh, running for governor, definitely running for president, any of these where you need tens of millions of dollars, the the real political impact that we can make among these communities is these local elections. Plenty of our black political scientists have said it. You heard Charles Barron say it is where you can make a real impact on black people's lives is in these local elections where certain money is being controlled in these localities. Exactly. And I just use that as an example about what had went on in that race there where the guy only had a thousand dollars. I'm quite sure the incumbent had millions of dollars because he had been in the office 20 years. Mm Mm-hmm. But it took that guy a thousand dollars, a little over a thousand dollars, to beat to beat that uh, guy. Mm-hmm. So it's it's clues there on tools that we can use to uh, be able to navigate these minefields that we're dealing with when we're talking about this system. It's yeah. tools out there. If you don't pick up the tools and use them, then they're just sitting there. <laughs> and, it's, and it's interesting, Elliot. Because that ties to, you know, the article you just read um, in the sense of, you know, the, the, um, that, that, that survey that they did. Because it was the dissatisfaction, I got the impression, it was the dissatisfaction of the electorate against the elected official that, all, that he was getting whatever, the, not only just the donations, but the edging on because they're dissatisfied. So if you got 20% of the electorate from that survey, right? If you got 20% and they were just seeing someone who was genuine within a a genuine black leadership, a leader, political leader uh, in our community, as you say, it becomes a no brainer in relationship to guaranteeing a win or the example they gave in New York, you gave in New York. I mean, it shows for the political party, it ain't no uh, 
of permanent enemies is permanent interests, right? Because the, if the Republican Party was feeding the Democratic candidate funds to beat someone who is neither part of the Republican or Democratic Party, because they, they, they obviously didn't think the Democrats was able to do it on their own, right? They they funneled the money in it in the Democratic Party, or that's at least that's what the report is saying. To beat someone, not because she they looked like she was going to lose, because even though she wasn't a part of the two party in her philosophy, wasn't a part of the two party system, they think, and I think you said that the race was close. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. right. So. They funneling money, and she still because what the people are as Honor uh, uh, Large Bahamas said is look you hear you get to see people getting to be a hundred percent dissatisfied, and when they, that that race in New Jersey is showing that those people they didn't he didn't have to be a lawyer, he didn't have to be in part of the political he a truck driver, he been a truck driver all his life. Right? And people say, I don't care if you are a truck driver. Corey Bush, she wasn't a political, this is, you know, a, a mother coming who are off of welfare, who's seen the need within our community and was able to. Is that Detroit? I'm not sure where. Uh, um, I think so. Where she is. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not so, sure. It's just, it's just, and I, I, hopefully I'm reinforcing your point that it is, it's not as organized and being able to capture the mind and spirit of the people in relationship to providing what, what we need and them being a hundred percent dissatisfied and what's going on. And it seemed like we're getting close there. Uh, before we take a break, uh, in this freestyle Friday, I, I, uh, I'm going to shift the gear a little bit before we take our break. Um, <laughs> cause I ran across this, uh, what well, it, it made the, uh, uh, wire. And I was reading this story. Um, cause you look at, at some of the men and one of the high profile guys, uh, playing basketball. That's, uh, unvaccinated is Kyrie Irving. And he's not playing right now because, uh, the team that he was on said that he's not going to be able to play for him until he's vaccinated. So you got folks that's kind of mm-hmm. say that again, Richard. No, no, no. You, you've got folks that's kind of bashing him, whether you got uh former players, uh, uh, for, um, current, uh, uh, analysts, if you want to call them that, um, the entertainers, I think Chris Rock made some stupid ass comments in reference to Kyrie Irving the other day. And this published report came out in reference to the Phoenix Suns owner, which is not surprising because all of these sports is filled up with people like this. America is filled up with folks like this. The only thing is that you have blacks that don't say anything when this stuff is going on until it leaks out or comes out 
Now, let, let me just share portions of this story here uh, in reference to the Phoenix Suns basketball team owner. It says, Robert Saver, Saver I guess the Starver, however you pronounce his name, allegations in the ESPN report uh, explained Suns owner accused of racism. An in-depth report from ESPN's Baxter Holmes featuring interviews with more than 70 current and former Suns employees has painted a picture of toxic and sometimes hostile workplace under team owner Robert uh, Sarver. Sarver, who bought the franchise in 2004, has allegedly used racial and sensitive language on a regular basis. There's literally nothing you could tell me about him from a race standpoint that would surprise me, one former Suns executive told Baxter Holmes. Uh, Saver, who is white, allegedly used the N-word in multiple instances, including a conversation with former Suns coach Earl Watson, who is black, after a 2016 home game against the Golden State Warriors. Watson told Holmes that Sarver entered the coach's locker room and said, you know, why does Draymond Green run up and down the court and say nigger? Watson told Sarver that he couldn't say that. And Sarver allegedly responded, why? Draymond Green says nigger. Sarver denied the version of events, saying that he never uh, used that word. On one one high-level executive told Holmes on a separate incident in which Saber allegedly used the N-word in order to explain to a staffer why he hired Lindsey Hunter instead of Dan Marley as team's head coach in 2013. He said, these niggas need a nigger. These niggas need a nigger, Sarver said, according to the executive. Sarver also denied saying he ever used the N-word. In 2017, uh, employees said that white male executive repeatedly called a black co-worker Carlton in reference to the character on the 1990s uh, sitcom Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. In at least one incident, but he jokingly told the co-worker to do the Carlton for him. The employee said that the black co-worker on multiple occasions told the white executive to stop calling him uh, by that name and that he was going uh, not going to do any more dances for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of the other employees said, said the executive then reached by ESPN denied telling the employee to dance and said he never asked him to stop calling him Carlton and described their relationship as jovial and one of uh, friendship and respect. Uh, Through a legal team representative, Starver denied using racially insensitive language, telling Holmes that he never called anyone or any group of people the N-word or referred to anyone or any group of people as N-words. However, he noted that he did use the N-word once, years ago. An assistant coach told him that he shouldn't say uh, nigger. 
even after he was coded by another person. Uh, Starvis claims that he apologized and never used the N-word again. So he never used it, Richard, but he did admit he used it once and was mm-hmm. told he shouldn't say it anymore, so he, not, he, didn't, he didn't use it anymore. And I'm just saying that because, you know, whether it's the Clippers owner, this guy, I think it was a general manager for Cleveland, uh, uh, that that uh, uh, bum that couldn't play basketball, Danny Ferry, all these people that say these things, uh, uh, players know it, coaches know it, and they don't say anything. Now, Earl Watson was on the team. Uh, he got fired. Well, he was coaching the team. He got fired. But he told this reporter this not too long ago. He was fired a couple of years ago. They got a current black guy there, Monty Williams, who used to be with the Philadelphia team. Nothing said. Nothing said now. What is it, fear, Richard, that they don't say anything in reference to these guys? Is it fear? Hey. They're making millions of dollars. They they don't want to lose that status. They don't want to lose that check. But you know, Elliot, um, as you were reading that, now it took me back. Um, remember, was is this here? Um, is it, I guess he's an evangelical minister, and what he was saying um, um, in relationship to the other black ministers at the time. I think he has a TV, the, a TV center. Oh, that was the the um, the uh, owner of the Word Network. I forgot that guy's name. It's slips my mind, but he said that he was the pimp. And these right. black ministers was his hoes. <laughs> I mean, isn't that similar? Well, certainly. And you had a few of them that said that they were upset by it. But by and large, you didn't. In fact, you didn't hear a lot of the, uh, the uh, whether it was Chopton. He's called himself a minister. I didn't even hear him address it. Mm-hmm. Other ministers locally, they act like they didn't know what was stated. And I know that if they don't uh, watch that word network, their congregation does. Black supported it. Black supported that that trash network. This is that garbage. And so, and this is the same thing here in relationship to now. That's that's dealing with religion, and this is dealing with sports. That black support, and and know that these owners have this view. And I think there's this, uh, and I just heard of even with this um, this recent thing that Kaepernick um, put out. Um, isn't he making that case that they uh, that the the process that he went through and you know I'm just again I'm just hearing is like how they treat uh, these athletes like they're slaves mm-hmm. yeah to measuring in measuring and you know the the way they are ex- inspecting yeah the, yeah you know like a slave market they you know they they take their clothes off they run and jump. But they look at their muscle tone. You know, a lot of things. It reminds you of what they did to our ancestors, uh, you know, when they when our people were in chains. So we get these, these we ain't talking about uh, past practices, right? And we ain't talking about the, the, the power differential. Who, who, who would he, in, in those three examples, isn't the ones that that are the owners white and the ones who are the participants black? (laughs) 
Let's take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation. Uh, you can get involved, too, in this Freestyle Friday. We see a couple calls on here. We're going to jump to them. Uh, you can do that by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. Listening to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 215- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Escape the digital plantation. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger. Run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family, to join your interconnected commit to you black communities, escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep 
relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us? Or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America? We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. a message to the black man because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock nobody takes the black man serious we're just used to be somebody's tool we are the sportsmen we're the singers and the dancers and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you. And you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand. Then you go with your hat 
in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president, begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown disrespect all of us. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 921 here in the city of Philadelphia on this Freestyle Friday on Time for an Awakening. You can get involved in the conversation if you choose to by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Three, two. Uh, let's go to the phones. Let's go to nine one seven. This New York City. Nine one seven. Nine one seven. Let's put them back on hold. Maybe they stepped away. Let's go to uh, let's go to Oberlin, Ohio. Maybe Sean is there. Sean. Let's put them back on hold. Uh. Yeah, before we go to our next caller, let's uh, let's go to Pittsburgh and 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 talk to uh, activist, organizer, and founder of the New African People's Party, Brother Khalid Rahim. Brother Khalid, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. I can hear you, brother. Can you hear me? I hear you clear. Yeah. yeah look, look. I first of all I have to apologize. Uh, I had a uh, meeting, and I, uh, I I just disengaged from a meeting just a few moments ago. I thought I would have been available a little. A little earlier, I can't stay on very long either. Hey, no problem. Those, uh, evenings, but I just want to say uh, thank you again. Uh, yeah, here in in uh, Pittsburgh, the Three Rivers, the Steel City. You know, we call ourselves the Steel City, even though steel is not our main um, product anymore. You know, we're more so uh, what we call an Ed Med Tech City. In other words, the economy here is really based on the educational institutions, the universities, especially the public universities that receive a, uh, a tremendous amount of money from the government because they have uh, contracts with the U.S. government, uh, for example, University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. And then um, the med, because we have some very prestigious medical centers here, the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. And also um, this has been a place that's been able to attract new technology. And so this has become a tech hub as well. So we're no longer really the steel city in terms of steel being the core of this region's economy. Now the core is actually um, education, healthcare services, and technology. So I just want to make that clear to people. And it's the Uh, same thing here in Philly. Oh, same thing in Philadelphia. Okay. Mix. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, like the economy has transitioned in Philly as well. I know some decades ago, um, Philadelphia had developed a, a very stable economic basis around the longshore uh, work and around some other uh, industries. But you know, 
when you talk about globalization, you talk about the impact of globalization, it's basically gutted local economies as well as national economies to boot. So, uh, and I tell people this all the time, if you want to get a, just, just want to get a basic sense of what globalization really means for your local economies and what it means for the nation's economy, do a quick and fast inventory of your home, right? Walk through your house and just check out um, where everything is actually made, right? Where's your TV from, right? Where's your furniture made? Now, some of your furniture is made in the penitentiaries, but outside of the furniture that's made by your, 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 your relative or your friend who's locked up in the penitentiary somewhere, uh, making furniture and other things based on slave labor. Most of the things within your home, most of your household appliances, and perhaps even the vehicles that you drive are made somewhere else. Now you contrast that with what it was like just a few decades ago, if you had did that same type of inventory. Um, a few decades ago, most of the stuff within your home would have been made by some company within the United States of America. It could have been a company in Philadelphia. It could have been a company based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And what that meant is that the people in your neighborhood had an opportunity to earn a living uh, based on an economy that was firmly connected to where you lived, if not your city, your county, your state, but certainly your country. Well, nowadays, again, take that inventory, even the clothes that's on your back. If you uh, flip over and look at the clothes that's on your back, a lot of times the the T-shirts, the hoodies, the sweaters, the dresses, the shoes, everything is made somewhere else, right? And so that means that jobs have left here, went to other places, because capitalism is always looking to exploit um, better markets. And for capitalism, a better market is a market where they can extract the most surplus value and have to pay out um, the least in terms of wages or, or overhead expense. So again, globalization, globalized capitalism on steroids, where you know we run around here within this so-called country and our jobs are just going to other places. And the politicians, they tell us that they're fighting for us, but they're really not because their campaigns are being paid for by the major corporations. And so the major corporations are really pulling the strings of our politicians, whether it's a local politician who's taking money from the developers that keep building stuff in your neighborhood or what used to be your neighborhood because you've been pushed out, or it's your congressperson who's taking money from local developers as well as major corporations to make sure that um, they can get the tax breaks, to make sure that they can um, exploit and find cheap labor sources elsewhere. And in talking about local politicians, um, I understand that Pittsburgh got a new mayor. Is that? Yes, yes, yes. Pittsburgh <laughs> Pittsburgh finally made the transition from colonialism to neocolonialism. Okay. So, you know, like for many years, we suffered from straight up naked, raw white supremacist political rule. Um, but um, just a few days ago, Pittsburgh elected its first black mayor a brother named Ed Ganey. Uh, Ed Ganey uh, uh, is a state representative. He's been a state rep now for several years. And actually, Ed Ganey is not a bad guy. Um, you know, but Ed Ganey is part of the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party, yes, they have progressive people and they have good people, 
within the Democratic Party, but the Democratic Party machine and the Democratic Party bureaucracy is still a political machine that is based on economic exploitation and white supremacy. And so, yes, there are good, decent people within the Democratic Party, and they mean well, and they will try to bring about some some change. Um, I wish the brother well, and I hope and I pray that um, he will get the necessary community support during his term in office that, um, you know, he's been able to get at the polls so far. Um, and actually, he should have got more political support. But again, it was it was not huge voter turnout, but it was substantial voter turnout. And it was enough to get him put in office. So I only hope and pray that he will do the right thing. Um, I will give him credit, as I said before. He's not a bad guy. Um, I don't agree with everything that he's done thus far as a state rep. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've heard criticism about his response or how he handled different situations. Um, and he, you know, he does have those relationships with the traditional uh, folks in the Democratic Party. But he has been very visible when it has come to highly controversial things that have occurred within the black community, whether we talk about the housing and therein is a question mark because some people believe he should have done more in terms of the housing situation with some of its, with some of his constituents. Um, but he's been very visible when it came, when it, when it comes to dealing to the issues around police brutality and he's very, he's been very visible in support of, uh, you know, the rights of working people. And so, you know, we need to, to, to hold him accountable as much as we can. Uh, we dare not go to sleep. We don't want to make the same mistakes uh, with Mayor Ganey that many of us made with Barack Obama and make any assumption that just because it's a person, this is a person of African descent or this, or this person has a nice looking family and they speak well, that we're just going to give them a pass and give them a free ride. No, we can't do that. Uh, we have to hold his feet to the fire. We have to hold him accountable. And we have to make sure that he proposes and or supports the type of policies that, that are going to be beneficial to the collective best interests of the Black community, especially the Black working class and the Black poor. So um, I wish the brother well. And, um, you know, we, we need to support him when he's doing the right thing. And then we need to principally criticize him or critique him when he's doing the wrong thing. And so that's the position that we take. Uh, Brother Khalid, two things I want to get your opinion on while you with us this evening. Um, yeah. One, uh, in Pittsburgh, and this centers around the uh, New African uh, People's Party, uh, because I remember the last time we spoke and when you were here, alas, uh, you talked about uh, some candidates that was running under the party banner and that had won uh, some local seats there in Pittsburgh. Uh, how's things going in relation to that? Um, and also, well, it, it, give me that and then, then I'll move on to the next okay. question. Okay. Well, actually we didn't, uh, we won some local seats just in terms of the judge of election seats, but okay. we had, we ran uh, for judge of elections. We won those two seats. Um, I ran for mayor, but I got bumped. Uh, in the courtroom because um, even though the people who had signed the petition so we could get on the ballot were registered voters because I was running for the mayor of Pittsburgh, and this was some years ago, 
I was running to get on the ballot to, uh, for the mayor of Pittsburgh, there, there were people who had signed this petition who were not residents of the city of Pittsburgh. They were residents of the county, Allegheny County, right? So Pittsburgh is the county seat. And so we did not meet the requirements. So we got knocked off the ballot before we even had a chance to run in the race. Um, they challenged our, they challenged our petitions in court and we lost that, uh, battle. Uh, but, um, uh, we also had a brother who had ran for a, uh, council position in one of the boroughs outside of Pittsburgh. And um, he came close, but he didn't quite make it. He needed to be within the top three, and he wound up being in fourth place. And then uh, I had ran some years ago as well for a position as a county council person for Allegheny County. And that was our first campaign under the new African Independence Party. And we shocked everyone because that was our first campaign. We received uh, about 12 to 13% of the vote. And so we've been doing this kind of work ever since then, but we just don't deal with electoral politics. As a matter of fact, we try to do much more than just electoral politics. We try to uh, deal with the advocacy, political education, organizing, cultural programs, all the other stuff that has to be done. We had a couple of campaigns. Uh, One of those campaigns is still active. Well, we had three active campaigns, one of which is still active. And that's the campaign around reparations and black self-determination. And so we started that campaign a few years ago um, to focus on trying to get reparations for uh, black folks in the city of Pittsburgh and in Allegheny County. So that's an ongoing campaign. We also started a campaign to develop an independent black union. And so we now have our own union called the New African Workers Union. And our third campaign was to uh, create a civilian police review board for Allegheny County. And uh, we uh, finally got to the point where um, the the county representatives voted. They took a vote and they agreed that Allegheny County should have a civilian or a citizen's police review board. It certainly is not what we had in mind because it doesn't um, have the power and have the authority that we had originally advocated, but we believe this is a step in the right direction. So those are some of the things that we've been doing over the last um, uh, seven years or so. Yeah, Brother Glenn, the, um, and I was just discussing it with Richard before we took a break, mm-hmm. and I was, uh, as the backdrop, I was using that election that just took place in Virginia, uh, mm. where uh, certain uh published reports came out uh, where black voters were being blamed <clears throat> for what happened with the uh, incumbent uh, governor. But I cited to Richard about this uh, poll that was conducted by students at the uh, Virginia State University and uh, um, at the newly developed John Mercer Langston Institute for African-American Political Leadership. They conducted a poll among Virginia black voters from ages 18 to 60. And I thought it was interesting. I wanted to get your opinion on it. Um, According to their uh, statistics gathered, uh, the new poll shows that 20% of black voters in Virginia have no political affiliation. And this was days before the election. Do you, 
and based on your work and what you have been doing, uh, trying to educate black people to, uh, have a different mindset, a different approach to political leadership and developing of your, the, uh, new African people's party. Do you think this is fertile ground for something to be developed there being that 20%, which is thousands of voters. If you're looking at the whole mm-hmm. uh, electorate, 20% of black voters, according to this poll, have no party affiliation. Give me, give me your assessment of that and your opinions. Well, actually, I think those numbers reflect um, the tendency all across the United States of America. The United States of America is a constitutional republic, has a very poor record when it comes to voter turnout overall. And, uh, you know, we think that we're the greatest so-called democracy on the face of the earth. And we think that the citizenry, um, you know, is actively engaged in every electoral race and every competition. But actually, it's quite the opposite. You know, the numbers are very uh, poor, right? Um, when people do come out to vote, they usually come out to vote uh, in the presidential races that, that they believe matter. And also because there's so much propaganda that's been dumped on them that they may feel compelled to come out and vote. Um, but in a lot of local races, number one, the voter turnout is relatively small. And number two, the margin of victory is oftentimes very slim. So you have low voter, low voter turnout, right? Especially in those races that are local and those races that are off year races. In other words, they're not a race that's happening when someone is running for president, right? Um, a lot of Americans don't participate in electoral politics. A lot of Americans don't think that their vote really matters. A lot of Americans don't think that their their interests will really be represented. And you find that, uh, you know, with, with people within the Black community as well. So it's not just uh, segments of the white community or segments of, the, you know, Latino community or Latinx community or other communities of color, you find this prevalent in all communities across the U.S. demographic that there's a tendency for people uh, not to come out to vote, right? Um, People in many ways have lost faith in electoral politics. Um, And you see it if you just look at the numbers. And then if you look at some of the shenanigans of the the politicians themselves, the things that they do that just don't make sense, the things that they do that are that, that basically are just self-serving. Um, for example, the race up in Buffalo, where um, a, a, a progressive, radical socialist woman actually won the Democratic primary, right? And she made it clear that she was about socialism. Uh, she was about... Uh, uh, a more equal distribution of wealth and resources for all people, not just the wealthy, not just the rich, not just wealthy, rich, white people, not just the black, bourgeoisie, right? Well, guess what happened? She lost to the incumbent mayor, defeated him in the primaries, and she was geared to become the next mayor of Buffalo, which is a major city. And um, the, the the mayor who lost Right. He turned to the more moderate. Now, this is a black guy. He turned to the more moderate conservative elements within the Democratic Party 
and then even turn to elements within the Republican Party, right, and elements within the Black bourgeoisie, the Black business community, and they all got together and they waged a heavy-duty campaign to defeat this woman a couple of days ago in the general election. So they basically said, oh, yeah, well, she's a, you know, she's a progressive and she wants to do the right thing by the people and she's talking socialism and she's talking, uh, you know, equality and equity and wealth distribution and all this other good sounding stuff that we can talk about when we campaigning, but we ain't going to never do it. But she's talking about it, campaigning on it, and now she's going to be positioned to try to do this kind of stuff. They said, hell no. So they all got together and they defeated her, right? Reflect on what happened with Bernie Sanders. When Bernie Sanders, um, you know, the, 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 the preeminent white progressive within U.S. government, the preeminent white male progressive within the U.S. Uh, Senate, um, he campaigned on a progressive, uh, liberal type of campaign platform. And for real, Joe Biden was getting his butt kicked. And what saved the day is that it took a black man, I cannot remember this guy's name. He's a congressman from South Carolina. Clyburn. Right. Who? Clyburn. Clyburn, right. Clyburn basically saved the day for Joe Biden's campaign in the Democratic Party presidential primary. He lifted Biden out of the ashes and literally breathed new political life into his lungs. And lo and behold, we all know what happened. He went on to basically get the Democratic Party's nomination, and then he became the president of the United States. And so look at what the Democratic Party machine did. They basically dissed one of their own because one of their own was pushing back against the status quo. And he was talking more uh, equitable wealth distribution, more social justice. He was talking free education. He was talking a lot of good things that could benefit not just the super-duper rich or not just that uh, group of elite people within the Democratic Party or the ruling class within the United States of America. He was talking about doing some things that could benefit large numbers of people here within the United States. And they wasn't having that. And so what they did, they went and got a black man and they used that black man to save the face of white supremacy and economic injustice, i.e. through the Democratic Party. And so that's what they did. And they did the same thing up in Buffalo, New York, just a few nights ago. So that should be a lesson for all of us, all of us who continue to think that the only route for us or the only way for us is the Democratic Party. We need to understand that the Democratic Party is still a party of economic injustice, is still a party of capitalism at home, imperialism abroad, and it's still a party that promotes white supremacy, right? It, it, it promotes white supremacy with a smile on its face. It's a mo- it promotes white supremacy with a, with, a, with, a, with a bow and with a nod, but it's still white supremacy. It's still going to make sure that white people stay in power, and not just any white people, but rich, wealthy, elite white people stay in power, and it's still going to work hard to make sure that poor working-class white people have some type of mythology, you know, some type of mythology going on in their head that they too can become rich and wealthy as long as they, you know, continue to keep black and brown people and indigenous people in check. That's the Democratic Party. And that's not all the Democratic Party, but that's the that's the leadership of the Democratic Party. That's the that's the ideologues of the Democratic Party. 
they they can talk nice and sweet. They can make a thousand promises, but they will turn against their own if their own are really sincere about keeping those promises. And I think that's been demonstrated. If you look at what happened with Bernie Sanders, the two times recently that he's ran for the presidency. And then if we look at what happened to the woman up in Buffalo, New York. Richard, the one thing that, um, as you, you were saying that, and look, let's let, because uh, one thing that I'm interested in as far as helping us drill down, um, one thing I can continue to say is about political education. Elliot just read the numbers about um, those that said that 20%. And, and I'll, I'll say that's probably the same thing in Philadelphia and it's probably the same thing in Pittsburgh. And since mm-hmm. you're in Pittsburgh, you can be able to identify more. Um, and I think that in our discussion, we're, we're, we're asking the question, is it because um, the effectiveness of our political education on that particular segment? The segment is saying, I'm not aligned with any party, you know, um, and I'm not voting because of that. Is that because of the political education? I mean, you know, or is it because, the, um, as you laid out, the structurally, people, American people and, and Black people particularly, just don't, that segment just ain't going to vote regardless? Well, there's some people who are not going to vote because they don't see any importance to voting because they, in in based on their experience, their lived experience, they haven't seen any material benefit from going to the polls, right? Um, you know, I, I've, I've seen this meme several times where on, on the uh, left, it is say something like the hood during the Bush era. And then on the right, it'll be the hood during the Obama era. And the hood looks the same, mm-hmm. right? And so that that's a that's a comical representation of a political and social reality for a lot of our people that regardless of who's in the white house, my house still looks bad. You see what I'm saying? My, my house is still in disarray, right? My rent is still due. My mortgage is still due. I'm still overworked and underpaid, right? I'm still sending my children in some instances, my grandchildren to schools that are poorly performing schools. I'm still sending my kids to places to be educated that don't really have their best interests at heart, right? People are still using my tax dollars to to to, to drop bombs and to drone other uh, people of color, African, Asian, and other people of color all around the world. While at the same time, my bridges and my roads still need repair. They needed repair when Bush was in office. They needed repair when Obama was in office. And they still need repair now that Trump has left and Biden is taking his place. And that's my why- bridges and roads are still in repair, And so a lot of people have lost confidence, wow. right, in this so-called electoral system, this, this whole process of exercising your rights to this constitutional democracy. And as far as, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm asking, asking us, is it because we're, um, it's not enough of us, that, or we're those people particularly, because what Elliot was raising was that, that 20%, using that as an example, this is, you mm-hmm. know, you know, and uh, that 20% is specifically open to um, participate in the process if people, someone came to them with, um, you know, the energy, the leadership that we're, we're saying leadership, right? That could speak to, not speak to the issue, you know, I'm going to lead you, but give the information of how we can be able to actually 
move this system to our best interest. You was mm-hmm. mentioning about judge of election. That's low hanging fruit, right? Mm-hmm. That kind. Of, I mean, where we could see is it because, and I'm, therefore, I'm again asking: Do you think it's because we don't understand that you know, no, and that's the political education that the judge of election position is something that we can win outside of mayor, council, or 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 state legislator or, um, you know, the congressperson, that we can win those seats. They provide jobs, you know, patronage jobs. You know, the, the, um, Elliot just read a case about the, you know, judicial system um, in, in the court. So do you think it's because of political education, with that being said? Yeah, well, of course, I think we need more political education, but I also think we need a stronger movement that emphasizes the necessity of radical and revolutionary independent black politics. Um, If we continue to embrace the politics of tradition, and when I say the politics of tradition, where traditionally as black people, we, um, you know, look mostly towards the Democratic Party. We look for someone who fits a certain stereotype, right? And then we push that candidate, and that candidate really has no foundation within the communities that we want to serve or the communities that we work in and live in. But we push that candidate because they can speak well, they look well, they got a nice dress, suit and tie, and they come across good for the camera. So we push those candidates, right? We try to raise a whole bunch of money without really thinking about where the money's coming from. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you know, you made reference earlier to what happened in Virginia with the governor's race. Well, basically, the Democratic Party, they ran a traditional Democratic candidate who had already been governor, okay, once. I think in Virginia, uh, someone said that in Virginia, um, you can only run for four years at a time. I'm not I'm not sure whether that's true or not. Yeah. But uh, so he had already been governor once, and now he wanted to become governor again. Well, he lost because he represented... Um, the same old boy network. And then they introduced some of the same old boys to promote him, right? They brought Obama down there to help him campaign. They brought President Joe Biden down there to help him campaign. Um, I think there was somebody else who stepped up to the mic, you know, to help him campaign. But they didn't really represent anything that was fundamentally different. And then also, if you look at what's going on with Joe Biden's presidency right now, a lot of his campaign promises, the things that were major promises for working class and low income people, and especially for black people, he has not been able to fulfill. He has not been able to come through. Now, again, all the fault is not his, right? So we have to be fair. A lot of this falls on Congress. It falls on the Republicans within the Senate when the Republicans within the House of Representatives, right? But Joe Biden has been able to do what it is he said he was going to be able to do, because after all, his background for decades had been what? He had been the vice president of the United States for eight years. But before that, he had been a member of Congress for decades in the House of Representatives and then later on in the U.S. Senate. And so everyone knew who Joe Biden was. And so he claimed as he was campaigning that he was going to use those connections and use that understanding that he had developed um, from decades of working in government to help uh, build the necessary bridges and to help different uh, pieces of legislation get signed and to make sure that things were going to get done for the so-called American people. 
And so far, it really hasn't happened. It's been an ongoing battle. And now um, um, his his rating, his favorable rating, has, has just went down week after week after week since he was sworn in in January. <laughs> I, I, I did have one thought, but I didn't know if you wanted to go to a call. I was wondering about the you mentioning the campaign for reparations, and I think um, mm-hmm. there's some movement, and I'm wondering if, um, you know, how you, as you see these other cities and states are making these local reparations um, headways, you know, California. Well, first of all, let me respond to California first. California <laughs> hasn't passed any uh, law no. uh, basically saying that reparations are now due and they haven't developed any plan for any distribution of reparations. What California has done is basically enacted a, a law where I do believe either the California legislator legislature passed it, or I do believe it was an executive order from Governor Newsom that said that uh, reparations needs to be studied. So I do believe there was a creation of a reparations commission for the state of California. And please, I always encourage people when I make these comments and statements, do your own research. And if you find that what I'm saying is incorrect or you need to add something to, to it, please do so, because we don't want to misinform anyone. Um, so California, uh, to the best of my understanding, uh, has enacted a commission for the study of reparations. And I think a couple of other cities have done the same thing. And I think uh, maybe one or two cities have even went so far as to define and spell out what reparations would look like. Now, here's the key. The places that I'm familiar with, reparations it, 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 it is, is taken on the characteristic of like a tax break or taken on the characteristic of affordable housing or subsidized housing. That's not reparations. That's what your government should, should have been doing all along. You pay taxes, your government is supposed to do those kind of things for you. That's not reparations. And so one of the things that we've said is beware of politicians who come to you claiming that um, uh, tax breaks, economic development opportunities, whatever that is, are reparations. They're not reparations. And really beware of black politicians who come with who who come to you touting that type of foolishness. Reparations have to be based on um, basically very material and tangible things, not opportunities. Right. When politicians say, oh, yeah, this is a reparational justice package, we're going to open up um, and, and, you know, we're going to provide some opportunities for you to start a business. We're going to provide some opportunities for you to get housing over here and own a business over there. An opportunity is not tangible. An opportunity is not material. Reparations are based on tangible material assets, right, that are supposed to be given and provided, right, as, as, as a step in helping to repair damages that were done, right? Opportunities are not reparations. Opportunity is just that. It's a chance to do something or a chance to get something, right? Anybody can have an opportunity. I'm over 35 years old. I was born here within the United States of America, so I can have the opportunity to become the next president of the United States. How likely is that to happen? Yeah. Okay, so 
you know, I mean, what is an opportunity? An opportunity for you to get fair housing. What does that mean? An opportunity for you to purchase a home. What does that mean? Okay, well, we're going to give you an opportunity and this is your reparations. Okay, we're going to give you a loan at um, 5% interest and that's your reparations. That's not reparations. Give me the land and give me the house free and clear. Then we can talk about reparations, right? Mm -hmm. Not an opportunity. Do you think that right. it resonates right now, the, even just the political slogan tearing? Does that resonate with the black community as they, as you've been working on this campaign? I, I'm just kind of. Yeah, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people within our community support reparations. Mm -hmm. I'm saying I think a lot of black people support reparations, but I also believe that a lot of black people are very skeptical about the likelihood that we will receive reparations. Mm -hmm. And because of that skepticism, uh, some people are reluctant to kind of commit themselves to any movement or any type of initiatives where reparations becomes a front and center demand, right? So we will have more people coming out demanding police accountability than we will people coming out demanding reparations, hmm. right? Because so many of our people have come to believe that reparations is not attainable at least within their lifetime. And so we have to like break that mindset. We have to get people to understand that reparations is something that can happen in their lifetime. And it's something that can benefit not just them, it can benefit their children, their grandchildren, and their grandchildren's children. And it's something worth fighting for, it's something worth organizing for. And that can be very challenging to get our people to that, to that point, to that particular mindset. But we're working on it. We're doing the very best that we can. We have faith in our people. We have confidence in our people. We are God-fearing people. We are people of faith. I'm not talking about whatever your religious belief may be, but overall, collectively, we are people of faith. And uh, I have faith that um, our people at some point will develop the faith as well as the tenacity to pursue reparations as a very um, material and attainable uh, asset that can lift us up. Now, reparations doesn't equal self-determination and freedom. So that's one of the reasons we call our campaign, the People's Campaign for Reparations in Black Self-Determination. Because see, you can, you can get reparations and still remain enslaved. You can get reparations and still remain colonized. You can get reparations and still be a slave to the system, right? right? So we push for, we want the reparations because the damage was done and the damage continues to be done. But we also want self-determination. We also want to be able to make a decision for ourselves as to what our future relationship, if any relationship, is going to be with the United States of America and all these municipalities and all the institutions within it. But that's where self-determination comes in. We need to be able to determine for ourselves as Black people what is in our collective best interest. And so reparations, yes. We deserve the reparations, but we know that reparations is not going to free us. If you look at how this economy is structured, for example, maybe with the exception of land, everything else is fluid, right? So even if we were given, you know, different parcels of land, either collectively or in some instances um, individually or to different families, because, you know, different levels of reparations, there's certain things that should be given to us collectively, as 45 to 50 million black folks in this country. And then there are other things that need to be given to us either individually because of some individual damage or harm or collectively 
because of some damage or harm that was done to our respective family. So those are different types of reparations, right? But with the exception of possibly land, everything else is fluid. So if we all got $500,000 deposit in our accounts tomorrow morning because of how this economy is structured, a lot of that money would be lost relatively quickly because, you know, many of us have a consumer mentality. You know, uh, um, we don't understand certain things about finances as well as we should, right? And because we don't control this economy, and when I say we don't control it, we don't control this economy, uh, we don't control the means of production, you know, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that money would be lost because those tangible assets are very fluid assets with the exception of, for example, land, right? That's why land is so important, that part of our reparational demand has to be for land. It just can't be for some for some funds to be deposited into our account. That's That wouldn't be wise. We also have to include within our demands for reparations the release of our political prisons, all of them, unconditionally, right, uh, whether they committed so-called crimes or not. Because some of the brothers and sisters committed what people – or, or, or what the system would define as criminal types of activities, but they committed those activities in defense of our communities, and they committed those activities as a pushback against the evils of white supremacy and racism and economic injustice and exploitation, okay? And so we recognize that for what it is, and we have to demand as part of our reparational package that they be immediately and unconditionally released. You know, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has produced a magnitude of political prisons over the last several decades. When we talk about the Philly Five, which includes Russell Maroon Schultz, as I'm sure you all know, has been released uh, through compassionate release. Um, but he, you know, he's, he's, he's struggling with his health, hmm. but at least he's outside of the prison walls. But he was part of the group called the Philly Five. So from the Philly Five to Brother Jojo Bowen um, to the MOVE group, and to some others, right? Philly has produced a multitude of political prisons, right? Uh, probably the most famous political prisoner, black political prisoner in the world, hails from Philadelphia, and that's Brother Mumia Abu Jamal. So um, that has to be part of our demand for reparations. Release all of our political prisoners. Release those brothers, mostly brothers and sisters who stood up for us, who pushed back against white supremacy, who pushed back against Jim Crow, who pushed back against police brutality and murder, who understood that the police should not have the right to come into the black community and just systematically choke us to death, hang us and murder us and shoot us without some justice. And if the system wasn't going to provide that justice, we had brothers and sisters who stood up and they took it upon themselves to exact the people's justice. And they deserve justice for themselves because what they did was a pushback against the massive systemic injustice of racism and white supremacy and police brutality. And so they need to be released. They should be let go. So that has to be part of our demand for reparations. It's more than just a check. It's more than just a deposit into our account, right? It's more than just a pat on the back. It's more than just a housing voucher or a reduced mortgage, Right. It has to be structural, systemic and fundamental. It has to be something that's going to cause a seismic shift in our relationship to the system that we live in. Uh, Brother Khalid, uh, before you go, uh, uh, 
may have called or two to want to make a comment to you, uh, I guess. Oh, you know what? I'll tell you, um, anybody that you have who wants to make a call, you know, who's calling in or something they want to say, hey, good. Okay, good. let's go we to two, 267. 267, are you there? Hey, uh, yes, I am. Hey, good afternoon. I mean, good evening, uh, Elliot, Richard, and I want to say good evening to your guests. Um, I want to know if the brother agrees with me or not. I heard him talking about reparations. Um, I don't believe that's a reality until there's a mass exodus out of that Democratic Party. Uh, I, I myself, now I heard, I heard Richard's question earlier about voting. I vote every election, but I'm a nonpartisan. And I look at each party and see what's in it for us. And really, when I, just like you said earlier, the ghetto still looks like the same with Bush Clinton, Reagan, it, it looks the same. So what? So the only way I believe reparations could come about if we get out of that party, I mean, by big numbers, and then, you know, tell them come to us. Because long as we rely on them and we keep looking and hoping for uh, that change Obama was talking about. He wasn't talking to us. He was talking to everybody but us. You know, we as a people have to stop this foolishness about being loyal to a party that is, if you look at the local politicians, they are the they are Democrats. They're the ones that's in charge of all the police brutality, the political prisoners, mm -hmm. The bombing. It was a black mayor that was in the uh, in in the big house in Philadelphia when Move got bombed. So if those things don't give us a hint that that party is demonic, and we have to separate from them first, preparations out the window. They're just going to continue playing us. They're going to dig up another uh, demon and say like, look, this is what we got to do first. Let's get Trump out. Let's mm -hmm. get Trump out, and mm -hmm. we'll worry about so. Reparations is far away. If, if, if we ourselves, and, and I do agree with you, is more than a bank account because that's nothing more than a stimulus check. That's mm -hmm. all that is. If they pour money in it, uh, you know, our folks at our mindset right now, it'll be more uh, Lexus and Air Jordan. It'll be a stimulus check. But like you said, it has to be land. But with some, but I see reparations being given today, and it's not us, under the Democratic Party. They're bringing Afghan people over here, putting them in homes, giving them mm -hmm. opportunities, while our people are. When, when I rode through Los Angeles, that did it for me. When I seen our people all in tent cities on the mm -hmm. street, but you had these other people from across the border living in homes, moving in the neighborhoods that our people once lived in, so if that don't give us a hint that this Democratic Party is our enemy, yeah, reparations is nothing but a pipe dream. So I would like you to give me, uh, mm. you know, uh, just, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, give me some feedback on what I just gave you. Because mm. maybe I'm seeing it a little bit different than everybody else, but I think we're in a sad situation right now because, a lot of our people are, and, and and those same people will argue with me and you and say like, just go out and vote, thinking that we're going to automatically go out there and vote for that part, which most of us do. Mm -hmm. We have to get out of that 
party. You know, and that, I'm not saying going to the Republican Party because they're just as bad. Their wings are well, the same what, brother, filthy, yeah, dirty birds. Yeah, yeah, brother, check yeah. this out. And so that's one of the reasons that we started the New African Independence Party because we recognize uh, much of what you just described, that uh, many of us, in, you know, Black folks, um, we vote straight Democrat um, just because that's what we were told to do. Our parents voted straight Democrat and their parents voted straight Democrat. For the most part, Black folks have been voting almost exclusively for the Democratic Party. Uh, it really started uh, during the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. But then it uh, became full bloom uh, when John F. Kennedy was running for the presidency. And it was a there was an understanding and there was a deal that was struck involving uh, Robert Kennedy, who was John F. Kennedy's, you know, one of his younger brothers, mm-hmm. who he did appoint as the attorney general once he got into office. But there was an understanding that was struck between Robert Kennedy, who was heading kind of heading his brother's campaign at the time, and Dr. King and other leaders from uh, the civil rights movement, namely Southern Christian Leadership Conference and others, that uh, if John Kennedy, who then was a senator, if he were to be elected as the president, then he would um, push real hard around civil rights issues for Black people, right? Now, keep in mind that traditionally, after Black people were given the right to vote, the vast majority of Black people were registered Republicans, right? Even many of the leaders within the civil rights movement in the 40s, 50s, and the 60s were registered as members of the Republican Party. I'm almost positive that even Dr. King himself at some point was a registered Republican Mm -hmm. and not a Democrat, all right? Um, So that wasn't uncommon, that there were many civil rights leaders, workers, and activists who were registered as members of the Republican Party, especially in the South, because it was the Republican Party that had led the way in terms of dealing with the abolition of slavery. I'm not talking about the abolitionist movement or the abolitionists themselves. I'm talking about the political party that some of them belong to or that they may have been affiliated with once upon a time. And, you know, because not all of them were members of the Republican Party. Frederick Douglass, for example, uh, was not a member of Lincoln's party. Uh, He was a member of another party. I can't recall the name of it. But I think later on, he became a member of the Republican Party later on in the post-Civil War era. But he was an abolitionist and one of the most powerful abolitionists, nevertheless. But after the Civil War, Black people gain the right to vote. And so we embraced the Republican Party because we looked upon the Republicans as the party of freedom and liberation for formerly enslaved people, African people. As a matter of fact, brother, I don't know whether you're calling from Philly, but wherever you're calling from, um, if there's a school in your area called Thaddeus Stevens, any school in your area called Thaddeus Stevens, whether it's Thaddeus Stevens Elementary, Middle School, Charter School, High School, is named after one of the most radical Republicans of his era, who was a real serious abolitionist, Thaddeus Stevens. Mm. And his partner um, was a was a U.S. congressman, I think he was from Massachusetts, named Charles uh, Summer. And these were two of the most radical Republicans amongst the group that were called the radical Republicans. Not only did they advocate political freedoms for the newly free uh, African slaves, but they advocated economic freedoms as well, right? And eventually, um, the things that they had proposed were basically knocked down later on. But I say that to say 
that there's a reason so many black folks up until the 1960s, right, were basically registered Republicans, especially throughout the South. In the North, there were Republicans and there were Democrats, right? Um, but in the South, it was mostly black Republicans. And then later on, that all changed. And uh, a lot of that change was a reflection of what happened in the civil rights movement, the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then later on after Dr. King was murdered, um, the, the, fair, the fair housing bills that were passed. You know, realizing that Dr. King uh, killed, murdered, assassinated uh, April the 4th, 1968, uh, literally weeks after he was murdered, the last great civil rights bill was passed. And that was around, that was concerning fair housing. So that kind of kind of turned the majority of the black electorate in mass towards the Democratic Party. And we've been there ever since, ever right. since. Right? Well, it's time for, so, well, I, I believe it's time for us to change that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, 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 absolutely. And, and like I you agree. said, you have an independent party that right. is a start. You know, right. it's time for us to change that. And, right. and you know, right. so that that's the basis of my my conversation. My argument is it's time for us to change. And no if and buts about it, because we're going downhill and we're going downhill fast. They're moving people in this country that's going sooner or later is going to be stepping on us. So, you know, well, here's I the thing. Now, call, yeah, yeah go ahead. listen, 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 you know, let me let me be clear about this. Our battle. Our fight is not against people who are coming into the United States of America um, because they're looking for what they believe to be a more liberal democracy compared to maybe where they came from. Or they're looking for economic opportunities, opportunities to work, opportunities to support themselves and their families. Just so we can be clear, our battle is not against people who are coming across the border. First of all, if you know something about the history of the United States of America, uh, large parts of what we now call the United States of America is basically the northern part of, of uh, Mexico, <laughs> for real, for real, right? right? So a lot of these people crossing the border, they're basically coming back to where their ancestors already were from Jump Street, right? So that's, told me that's that. yeah, I mean that's the truth. That's that so if you if you me. if you got some time, do a little research, uh, look at the war with Mexico. The United States went to war with Mexico, and one of the conditions was that, uh, you know, because Mexico was defeated or they signed a treaty. And part of that treaty was that Mexico gave up a lot of its northern lands and territory. So places that uh, I think it would be definitely Texas, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona, uh, parts of California, that stuff was northern Mexico, brother. Well, well, when you have a talk with one of them, they tell you, we're just coming back to claim what's ours. Well, basically that's that. it. Basically that's yeah. it. But, but, you know, I can understand where they're coming from and I'm not going to push back against that. But our battle is not with the people who are coming across the border looking for a better way of life. And our battle are not with the people who are leaving the countries that they was born and raised in, right? Because of some deals and promises that were made with the U.S. government and now they want to relocate here. Different types of people. We got migrant workers, we got immigrants and we got right. asylum seekers. Those are three different categories. The asylum seekers, for example, might be the people who are crossing the border from the south of us, from the southern part of the United States, crossing the border because they're seeking political asylum 
because there's hell going on in their country. And how did that hell start? That hell is, is directly connected to the destabilization efforts that were orchestrated by the United States government. The United States okay. government interferes in people's elections all around the world. The United States government aggressively seeks to destabilize the governments that they don't agree with, right? Governments that, that won't look up to the United States. Leadership that doesn't follow what the United States wants them to follow. Economic models that don't support capitalism, mm-hmm. right, and imperialism. Well, the United States tries to destabilize those those countries. And so yeah. part of that destabilization leads to chaos, confusion, and war, right? right? And so those people are forced to flee for their lives. And sometimes they flee to the north of them. And when they flee to the north of them, that means they're fleeing to try to get over here to the United States or to Mexico or somewhere else where they think it's safer and they can have an opportunity to live in peace, Right. So we're talking about people who are seeking political asylum. We're talking about migrant workers who um, people refer to as undocumented, but they provide the economic engine for a lot of the economy that goes on here with the United States, the food that's on our table, the food that we eat when we go to restaurants, when we entertain ourselves, our spouses, and our children, Uh is based on their labor, right? Right. So I'm saying we're not warned with those people. Because guess what, brother? There's enough for everybody. You see what I'm saying? There's really enough for everybody. There's enough material wealth. There's enough natural wealth for every human being on the face of this earth to live a decent okay. and productive life. So our and war brother, is not with them. Our brother, war is with I the hear, people I, who I, control I hear, the economy. I and we got to be clear saying. about that. I, I hear what you're saying. But when I rode through Los Angeles and I seen our people our people, I'm talking about our people, I, ain't, I don't care about them. I'm talking about our people living on the streets in tents. Mm-hmm. That's where our attention has to be. And and, and, and with those others coming over here, they, you know, I mean, yeah, they're looking for opportunities. But it's your mm-hmm. tax dollars. It's everything that you work for, your tax money, bringing these people over here looking for a better life. While our people are still on the streets in tents. Well, guess what, brother? Well, brother yeah. Okay, well, brother, let me share this with you. I've been to the West Coast before. So I've been to L.A., I've been to San Francisco, I've been to Oakland, right? And you're absolutely right. These people living on the street, you go to L.A., they got, like, real tent cities in Black. different parts. I've Black. been to San Francisco where, you know, like in Philly where, you know, we got the bus stops, or in Pittsburgh where we got the bus stops and you got the little uh, covering at the bus stop to protect you from the rain or the snow or the cold. I've been yeah. to places in, in, in San Francisco, well, no, in Oakland, where people live in those joints. That's that's where they live, right? It's, not, it's not a bus stop for them. That's that's their career, right? And, 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 and it's black people, it's brown people, it's Asian people. See, check this out. All I, Asian I did, people. I, did, I didn't see too many of them. Okay, well, let me, let me, let me, okay well, brother, let me, let me broaden your horizons, all right? There's black people, there's brown people, there's Asian people, and there's white people. When you go to those places, you're going to see a lot of, and I do agree, disproportionate numbers of African people or African-descended people, you're absolutely right. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just trying to make a point that, you know, the system that we're dealing with called capitalism, this economic model, this social model, is destructive. It's an inhumane, destructive model. It poisons food. It poisons water. It poisons air just so people can make a profit, Right. Uh, and so, and, and it poisons people's bodies as well, as we all know, right? 
So we have to look at the root cause of this stuff. We have to look at the root cause of why we have massive waves of immigration. What is what is the problem? Now, some some ways of immigration or some patterns of immigration are natural. They've been happening ever since human beings inhabited the earth. People will migrate. People will migrate when they have to deal with floods. People will naturally migrate to other areas when they're dealing with famine, right? People will migrate to look for uh, peace if they're dealing with war, uh, torn areas, a lot of conflict, physical conflict and war. So people will naturally migrate away from that stuff to some other area where they think there's there's food, there's water, there's opportunity to farm, there's opportunity to make stuff and grow and to be more social. So that happens naturally, right? We all know that all human beings come from Africa, all of us, no matter how light we are, no matter how dark we are, all of us originate from the continent of Africa. But if you look at humanity, we're scattered all around the globe. Well, how did that come to be? That happened through natural processes of migration. Right. Because people came from out of Africa and they migrated to other parts of Africa and they migrated to other parts of the world. Right. Looking, exploring. Um, sometimes it was conflict. It was war. Sometimes it was famine. Sometimes it was flood. You know, sometimes it was it, it was an earthquake, whatever it was. And people would migrate. And so that's a natural thing that happens. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the unnatural consequences of capitalism and imperialism. I'm talking about the unnatural consequences of regime change. I'm talking about the unnatural consequences of governments like the United States interfering in other people's national and local elections. I'm talking about the unnatural consequences of assassination, right? I'm talking about those type of things that have lent itself to creating the crisis that we're dealing with today, whether we're talking about the environmental crisis or whether we're talking about the migration crisis and whether we're talking about the political crisis. All right, well, brother. All right. Thank, Everybody enjoy your evening. Thank th- you. Thank you for your yes, contribution. Yes, sir. Thank you. I appreciate your comments. Let's go to 646. 646. Hey, what's happening? Richard Elliott into your guests. Listen, I got to agree with Brother Ralph. These white folks ain't never going to give us no reparations. And one of the main reasons why they ain't never going to give us no reparations because we ain't placed ourselves in the necessary position to get reparations. You got too many of these so-called middle-class, wealthy and other Negro queens trying to become a part of this whiteness. They don't set up communities like other ethnic groups do. You know, the sad state of affairs is that our people are just too disconnected from one another to do a damn thing in this country other than beg white folks. Just like Ralph was saying, other ethnic groups are building communities. Other ethnic groups are struggling also. But when you look at who's really struggling in this country, there's the Native Americans and then there's the Blacks. And unfortunately, because we have certain people in the public eye that are seen, we don't think that things are as bad as they really are. 
like Ralph said, in California, you got us living in tents. You got us being displaced by the Mexicans and the other Baba Louise. And they doing their thing. Now, I'd just like to know, how could you be basically the stronghold of a community and you let some other ethnic group come and remove you from that community? Here in New York, where I'm at, every other ethnic group has a community. Negroes talk about Harlem. Negroes don't own nothing in Harlem. Negroes don't even own 10% of the establishment in Harlem. The businesses, they don't own maybe 20% of the housing in Harlem. I mean, come on, man. I, I, I mean, you know, we are the position right now to where as we base everything that we do on the political situation to where as you could have some white folks in Virginia basically displace you based on what y'all were talking about earlier, critical race theory, which is absolutely the newest boogeyman scam going on. Because black folks don't know nothing about critical race theory, and white folks don't know nothing about critical race theory, and it's just being used like they used Willie Horton back in the day against Duke mm. That's all. Mm. It's the same. It's the same game, and we fall for it. And lastly, come on. Do you think that electoral politics? is going to save black people. Mm. You can't that's a, even... That's a very good question. Well, listen, you you made an assertion of democracy. How the hell do you have democracy in this country where the white man ain't even going to give you the right to exercise your vote? Where it is, I don't know if you heard what they're doing in North Carolina. You know, where's democracy at in this country? That's what I like to know, because I okay. don't see it. Okay. Well, when I when I talked about democracy, I was making reference to democracy as it's been defined and as it's been described uh, by, by the people who run the country and by the people who function within the country as public officials and politicians and representatives. I was not endorsing this particular democracy, saying that it's really true democracy, because... I agree. It isn't right. Uh, it's certainly not a, a a a true democratic model when you recognize how much money goes into electing public officials once they reach a certain point. So there's no argument here. Um, as far as um, you know, what's happening with other people? Here's the bottom line. You made reference to um, other ethnic groups and what they've been able to achieve in. You know, I don't want to make a whole bunch of assumptions, but based on the two groups that you singled out as continuing to suffer the most, you referenced indigenous people, the Native American people, and then you referenced folks of African descent or black people here within the United States. And you actually answered, you actually, for me, you answered your own question and you solved your own argument, right? Because if you look at it, the foundation of what we call the United States of America is based upon the genocide and the land theft against the indigenous or Native American people and the enslavement of the African people, right? Everything that makes America what it is today, everything that 
uh, people point to and say, wow, this is a great country, is actually predicated upon those two things, right? The genocide and land theft of indigenous people and the enslavement of the African people. The United States of America, as we know it today, would not have been able to survive if not for those two things. The United States of America, as we know it today, would have not been able to compete, not even in the 19th century, with other European powers, because it just would would not have had the material resources, the land, and not had the, the vast source of free labor power, the enslaved Africans. And so because of that, those defeated those defeated, those who had genocide committed against them, those who had their lands confiscated and stolen, those people, along with their enslaved African brothers and sisters, had to be methodically and systemically suppressed and oppressed from one generation to the next, to the next, and to the next. And hence, that's why you see the dire conditions of Black people here across the United States of America. You know, we're looking at a group of people, I'm talking about you and I, we're looking at a group of people who, you know, just in the last 60 years, basically um, got the right to actually vote in a meaningful way. Because even though after the Civil War, um, the right to vote was granted to the Black population, we know that that right was kind of snatched back a little after 10 years later, 15 years later, and then it was thereafter suppressed, Right. And so it took it it took a vibrant, aggressive, and bloody civil rights campaign just for black people to once again regain the right to vote and to publicly run for office, right? And not be fearful that they would be murdered, assassinated, or had their properties confiscated. And so that's the reality that we live in, brother. So, you know, you answered your own question. You made your you made a case for answering your own argument as to why Well, let me finish now and listen to you patiently as to why Black people are in the dire straits that we're in. Now, you reference Harlem. I agree with you 100%. I'll give you a quick quick and fast story. A few years back, I went to a, a conference. And it was, uh, I guess, what you typically would define as a Black power conference. And it was in Harlem, right? And it was at a Black church. And uh, myself and some other people, we attended. We left Pittsburgh. We made the trip up there. And uh, when we hit the street, because we, we got on the L, we got on the train, and when we got off the train, right, and we came up, we looked around, and we could see the different stores and businesses, and we saw white people, right, you know, skating up and down the street, walking <laughs> dogs, scooping up dog poop, all that kind of crazy stuff, right? And then we went to the church where the conference was held, and it was a great conference, great brothers and sisters there. So it was time for lunch. And what did we have on the lunch menu in Harlem at a Black Power Conference? We had Chinese food. Now, that's that's not the same thing against, you know, the Chinese brothers and sisters, right? But the point is this. To me, and, you know, those of us within the conference, we laughed about it. But it was a signal for us because it made us understand and recognize clearly the impact of gentrification, Right. It wasn't the Chinese who had gentrified Harlem. I think that business had been there for years itself. But there were all these other businesses that had left. And a lot of the Black businesses and restaurants had left. They did not survive. Right? So here we were in Harlem, New York, at, at, at a Black Power Conference and doing our lunch break, ordering and eating Chinese food. Right? 
And so you see that type of pattern in a lot of the cities all across the United States. They used to be powerhouse black community cities like Philadelphia, even Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, um, Chicago. What you know, what you see now is an emptying out of the city. And that emptying out has led to an increase in gentrified communities and neighborhoods. But what it's also done correspondingly has led to a decrease in black political power, right? So DC is no longer chocolate city. It's more like Carmel city, right? Detroit, you know, it's losing its black population, even though it still is the most heavily black populated major city in the country, but it doesn't have the population that it once had because the businesses, the industries have, 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 you know, closed down. Jobs have been sent abroad, overseas. Again, we talked about what that looks like, right? And, you know, cars that used to be made up in Detroit are now made in some other factories in, in some other country. Or if they're even made here with the United States, the companies that are making those countries are, or, are, are companies from other countries. And they just subcontract into a small group of American workers to produce automobiles, right, with their name and brand on them. And so that's the, that's the world that we live in today. And how do we push back? Well, you talk about electoral politics. Electoral politics will not free us. I agree with you 100%. But electoral politics is a tool that can help us to pursue our freedom and liberation yes. on, on, on various levels. And so we need not uh, uh, dismiss that tool that's in our tool cart or that's yep. in our tool bag. We need to use that tool. We should not abandon that tool because if we continue to abandon it, we're going to get worse than what we've been getting. You know, one of our problems is that we don't control our tax dollars, right? The people like you and I, we don't have no say-so over the tax money because a lot of times the people like you and I, we are so militant, so radical, and so revolutionary, we say, man, I ain't voting for nobody. I ain't going to no poll, and I ain't going to run for office, right? So our tax dollars are being used to, to, to feed corrupt politicians. Our tax dollars are being used as tax subsidies for development corporations that come into our neighborhoods and yep. displace our mothers, our fathers from our own neighborhoods. Our tax dollars are being used to bomb and to drone our African brothers and sisters in different parts of the world, right? So we got to step up to the plate and use politics as a, at least a vehicle so we can have some control over our tax money. When people say, well, I ain't got nothing to do with that. I said, yes, you do. Like when people tell me, well, Brother Khalid, I don't do politics. I said, that's okay. Politics going to continue to do you because everything in your life is political. Whether it's, you know, whether your garbage gets picked up, whether your street gets, gets fixed, whether your sidewalk gets paved, whether the police knock on your door politely with a warrant or whether they kick your door in at four o'clock in the morning and put guns in your children's face, your face and your woman's face. All that stuff is political. Right. So we got to regain control over our political life. And that's why we think electoral politics, not just voting, but running for office is very important. Uh, brother, thanks for your contribution, man. Hey, man, you know, you got me now. So since I'm here, I'm going to be here now. I, I can't do the other thing. So I'm here. So let's roll. What you say? Hey, Elliot, mm-hmm. I, I, Elliot, thank you. I just like I just like to say say this. If we keep on talking about reparations and not coming together with a plan to demand how we're gonna get 
our reparations and start going back into these cities and <clears throat> claiming us a central area where we're going to own and control all <laughs> aspects of that area like other ethnic groups do. We just gonna be in a continuous cycle that we in right now, not really moving forward, but a few of us doing doing okay. But collectively, as the community, we just gonna be totally all over the place. And, and, and that's when it's happened. Because I'll leave you with this, just like you mentioned Detroit. Who's basically have the control and the economics of Detroit. It's not really white folks. It's other nationalities and not blacks. And that's what's so tragic because even even though we were dependent on those factory jobs to sustain us economically, we should have been able to place ourselves in the position to still control and have power to do something else if the factories went out of business, to to create some sort of industry like other ethnic groups have been able to do to sustain their their community. That's what we well, need. Brother, we need okay, to well, brother, brother, community. brother, 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 I got to say this, right? You know, let me jump in. First of all, I think you're putting too much blame on the collective Black community about things that we really have no control over. You know, here like in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, for example, um, I was at a, you know, what's called a post-agenda hearing. And this is where Pittsburgh City Council people, they had invited a group of experts in to testify about the financial institutions within the city of Pittsburgh and their relationship to the Black community, right? Now, you know, they have post-agenda hearings about a whole bunch of stuff. But this particular post-agenda hearing was about that particular topic. It was mind-blowing for me. I thought I had heard just about everything there was to hear about how badly financial institutions like banks and, 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 you know, credit unions and so forth and pension funds, how bad they treat the black community until I sat in and I participated in the post-agenda hearing where they had testimony from a group of experts, some from Pittsburgh, some from outside of the city of Pittsburgh who were part of this study. Pittsburgh, and this was mind-blowing for me. Pittsburgh has over 900 banks and financial institutions, brother. Over 900. I'm talking about banks, credit unions, pension funds, insurance companies. I'm talking about institutions that lend, that borrow and lend money. Um, it has over 900 financial institutions and banks in the city of Pittsburgh. And out of that group, what this, what these people discovered is that over a 10-year period, there were approximately 550 banks or financial institutions that over a 10-year period had never made not even one loan to a Black person. Think about that. Not one. I mean, you could be the most racist, uh, uh, you know, loan officer in the world. And, you know, you got to at least make a mistake and, and give one black person a loan, right? These guys were so thorough that over a 10-year period, think about that, out of, out of 900 banks, 550 to 575 over a 10-year period, I had not made one loan to one black person. 
And then there were a whole no, bunch of other banks. No, you should think about the black no, that, church that put no, no, their no, money no, in no, that damn no, bank. No, 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 bro. It's not the black church. It's the it's yes, the it city is. of no, no, bro. Hear me out. See, see again. You blaming our people. You know, we got a few crumbs. No, it's not the black church. It's the city of Pittsburgh that puts our money in those banks. And that's the issue that we were pushing. Because guess what? Those banks and financial institutions, their deposits, right? A lot of their deposits come from the city where they come from other taxing municipalities like the school district or the county government or other boroughs and other municipalities, right? And so that's what we came to understand because those are our tax dollars. So they're taking our tax money because the city collects it, the school district collects it, the county collects it, right? And they're taking our tax money and putting it into racist, white supremacist banks that don't make loans to us as citizens. Yeah, but, but, right? but where you're so, missing the point is, brother, listen, I agree with what you're saying, but where you're missing the point is when you have institutions or so-called black institutions like that church, that put their money in that bank and don't make any demands knowing what's happening and what's going on. They don't know, brother. They don't know. They don't know, brother. Stop beating down down our people about stuff we don't control. I'm telling you, do you know what it means to control an economy? Brother, brother, listen. Do you know what it means to control like an economy? To control an economy? No, no, no. Listen, listen. To control an economy for a nation of people. And think about us as a nation. Right to control a national economy, you got to control the means of production, the means of distribution, as well as the means of manufacturing and extraction. Right, that's a lot of stuff. That's power. Right, our people at this point, we don't have that type of power. The stuff that we do, brother, is great. I mean, it's great stuff that we do. You know, we're very creative people. Black people, probably the only people here within this country, we take nothing and make it into something. So I agree with you. We could do more. I'm just trying to say to you, stop, stop sledgehammering us for something that we really at this point do not have control over. Now, it's well, going to take a lot of organizing and work for us to get to that point. That's all I'm saying to you. Me, now, you, me, now you can point to a couple of black right churches. Quick. You can point to a couple of black churches as an example no, no, brother, of, 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 how, of how we could do more. And I will agree with that. But collectively, brother... We we don't have the power right now. That's something we need to be striving no, for. That's I, something I that we need to aspire. You have the power based on what you just said. All that has to be done is for all of these black churches to come together collectively and say we're taking our money out of the banks unless you put forward 10% loan rate out to the community. But, but, unless Jay, that, let me. That, that right there, we've Jay, never done it though. But That's Jay, what I'm trying Jay, to let me. Jay, can I can I finish this one point, Elliot? Because I've been in a meeting with this. I was in a meeting, and I'm gonna name the name. I was in a meeting with Calvin Butts when they had the Abyssinian Development, Revenal Sharpton, and others, and it was brought up to them that this is what we need to do to create some sort of leverage. This was 15, 16 years ago. When Abyssinia was building up everything, do you know what happened? Basically, Abyssinia development has gone out of existence. Yeah, well, and just, there was an opportunity. Jay, let me let me say something because I want to get this last call on before we move on. 
All let right. me say something Thanks, in reference sir. to what Thanks. you said. Be on mute. Thank you for your comments, let, brother. Let me, I appreciate it. Let me say something in reference to what you just said. The um, and and I'll and I'll use what Khalid's been talking about since he's been on. I'll use an example because what you're talking about is a political move. It's political. Now, uh, James Klingman, and he talked about this before, and Richard can attest to it. Him and Dr. Claude Anderson and some others went to Detroit. I think this was an old six, Richard. You clear me up with the date. African child. And proposed to them in Africa because at the time, Kwame uh, Brown, not Kwame Brown, Kwame Kirkpatrick. Kwame Kirkpatrick. They had a black, everybody mm-hmm. in Detroit was black. And they could have done that with the tax money that was collected in Detroit. They mm-hmm. could have made those moves and they refused because they didn't want to basically offend white people. Black folks have the power to do certain things, just like uh, Khalid was saying. That's a tool in the box that we have to use. Some people don't want to use, they don't want to be involved, that, but then we still paying taxes here, and our tax money goes out of our neighborhoods to bolster other people. That's a mm-hmm. tool in the box we can use, and we got to offset that. We can take political control of these areas where we dwell. And, and if I if I can uh, the the other I'm gonna call it the other side, because what I um, a lot of times hear in a certain group of individuals in, in you know the points of view, if everybody if there's ten people in that in a room sitting with that point of view, that what we don't do they keep they they're operating of that in their individual mind, so their decision is going to be even they, they didn't communicate from the point of this in their mind, this is what we can do. And therefore I got to connect with you and connect with you to get agreement. They're operating in their mind, those 10 people, when the decision come to the table, we can't do it. Guess what they say? Oh, mm-hmm. we can't do it. So ain't no sense for me voting on it. Mm-hmm. If that's mm-hmm. already, if it, and there, this, I mean, you, it's a different thing when each individual and when we're and we just use the example of the you know the dialogue tonight. If it's two, three people that already in their mind they could come to as an individual the conclusion it can't be done. When they come together, they make a decision from the perspective it can't be done. And if they're making that decision, then it's not being done. But somebody else is making the decision. This is what we can do, and they do it. You see that. I, I just, I, I just, I just, and a lot of times I hear them do it, or this is what, and they, because it's an exclusion of them, this is what black people are not doing. Hmm. But, well, thanks for, yeah. thanks for your contribution, man. Yeah. So that's, that's, to me, it's a challenge. Let's go to 215. 215. Good, good evening, Brother Elliot. Good evening, Brother Richard and Brother Khalid. How you doing, my dear brother? Assalamu alaikum, brother. How you doing, my brother? Assalamu alaikum, How you doing, brother? I'm doing fine. I praise be to Allah. Brother Khalid, before I get into this more serious aspects of the, of the stimulating conversation tonight, you've been a native of Pittsburgh. I, have to, I always have to ask people from Pittsburgh. My good friend, you may even know him. He's, he's no longer with us now. He went, you know, he, 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 trans, uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, he went to be with the creator back a few years. His name is Jimmy Wayne Moore. And he was born and raised in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. So my question to you, Brother Khalid, are you from the Hill District? No, no. Listen, um, I've been living in Pittsburgh now most of my life, but I'm originally from West Philly. 
Oh, I'm right, down, okay, I didn't. Yeah, I'm from. Okay, yeah, I'm originally from the bottom. Oh, I got you. Okay, brother, right. I got you. Because yeah, when you look at Pittsburgh, I, I, you know, I'm a big jazz fan. I mean, you can yeah. you can stick oh, yes. to Pittsburgh. And, 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 I mean, look at the came out Art Blakey. I mean. Brown, uh, Dakota Staten, Ahmad Great. Jamal, Billy Eckstein. Right. I mean, we could be going. I mean, just so many. Just that's just right. that city and alone. Right. Man, I mean, they come from Pittsburgh. It's amazing that one city could produce these great black, and they all happen to be black. Come out of Pittsburgh. It's amazing, man. But you know, and, you know, brother Khaled, I just want to say this to you, brother. You know, I enjoyed the conversation with you and brother Jay and, and brother Ralph. It was very stimulating and stuff. And and, and, and and to see black men have intelligent conversations and stuff, even was even though some of it was a little heated here and there, but the fact that y'all was able to talk like, you know, black men and, and telling and, and air out your differences and agreements and disagreements, and that's what it's all about. But you know, you know, brother Khalid, you, you made a comment earlier, but you was talking about how to, in the Democrat Party, the infighting and how they gang up on certain progressives mm-hmm. or people that step mm-hmm. out of the boundaries, and you make you made a good point, brother Khalid, because we talk about this, and I'm gonna deal with Sister Indira Walton from Buffalo in a second. Mm-hmm. But don't forget they did this to that other sister too. Remember this sister that, that had uh, she was ahead in the polls up in Ohio. She was the one that was originally supposed to take Martha Fug's seat when she left the uh, government. Yeah, she had she had been. A, I think she was uh, the national campaign manager, assistant national campaign manager for Bernie Sanders. Exactly. Is that you're talking correct. about? I know. And that's, she had a, I cannot remember her name, but she was I a former either. state, she was a former Ohio state senator. And, and, and they got that old coon. Yes, they did. They drunk. And they, right. they came up that, and they ganged up on the sister and, they, and that white Republican money, dark, the, the, the dark white, whatever, Democrat money, all the corruptions came out and made sure that sister did, and they did the same thing to Sister Walton up in Buffalo. And you know, Brother Khalil, I'm so glad that Brother Elliot brought this up before he went to Hammond Rick was doing a commentary, because I'm, I'm, I'm speaking from a personal note. I don't live in Buffalo, but I, I actually, in a sense, I do, because I got so much of my family live in Buffalo. My sister, who I love dearly, my uncles, my aunts, my nieces, my nephews, all of them live in Buffalo. Many of them live up. I've been up to Buffalo many times. been up there in the winter. I've been up there in the fall. I've been up there fourth. And I know the city kind of like the back of my hand. And, them, and I'm, I'm going to say this to the town from the Wigan List audience. Byron Brown is a handkerchief head, boot licking coon, traitorous Negro. He's a gentrifier. That sister Walton, had she became mayor, and I'm glad you pointed this out, Brother Khalid, she was going to truly try to do the things that she, because she loves out, and she's right. a humanitarian. She, mm-hmm. her, she's, a, she's an inspirational sister. This sister's a single mother. She rose from the ranks to, to, to come up to try to help poor, disenfranchised people, mainly our people, but not excluding anyone else. And this sister would have, would have did some great things, had the, had the, 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 the bigots. And the Uncle Tom's and the Coons not ganged up on that sister because she really got a heart for the people and stuff. And it's a shame because, as you know, Bernie went up there and campaigned for AOC, all the work he campaigned for. But like you said, Brother Khalid, the, the corrupt ones, the corrupt power structure, they didn't want to see this sister. When she talking about equitable things, they didn't want to see that happen. So, so Byron Brown being a Negro, he is. And, he, and, my, and my sister told me just the other night, as a matter of fact, she said, she said, Joe, this man been been mayor for for fifteen whatever years. He said he has he, all he has did is, is, is look turn look the other way when these police kill our people, beat our people mm-hmm. down and bust. Mm-hmm. He don't do a damn thing about it. He's a complete Negro, and he has gentrified the community. Rich white developers have, have made a a mess 
with this Negro being mayor, Brother Khalid. They made a met up in Buffalo, and they sister saw that, and that's what she was trying to, they, they, they got a coalition together to try to get rid of that Negro so our people can start finally see some sense of equity up there in Buffalo. And you see this pattern over and over again, whether it's up in Buffalo, what happened in Ohio, and like you said, even with Bernie, he's, you know, he's a Caucasian. The power struck they did with Hillary and them back in 16, and, and, and the Biden people with Clyburn did it. That's right. The, Again, so you see a pattern whenever people, whether they black or white, step up to the plate and try to bring equitable resources to the people, they get ganged up by the white bigots and, and racism, white supremacy within that Democrat Party. Because we already know what the other party's about. That's that's clear. Mm-hmm. But they, right within that Democrat Party, like you said, Brother Khaled, we have to be very We have to be, you know, understand what you're dealing with and what you're up against and stuff, man. You know, I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sin and shame to the creator, man, when you, when you see this kind of stuff going. And then you wonder why. That, that 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 clown down in Virginia didn't win. Cause you see, see one thing, I, and I've seen, and I close with this brother Collette and Elliot and Rachel. I know y'all for time. I've been on terrestrial radio station here in Philadelphia and stuff. I've been talking for, since this election. I said the Democrat Party is going to continue to take a butt kicking nationwide, even in some cases local, until they stop taking black people for granted. Stop. You know, mm-hmm. talking around black people and talk to black people. I said, these brothers and sisters out here, they're not stupid, Brother Khalil. If, you, if, 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 if the Democrat Party, go, if they send politicians out there to, to the black community, I'm talking about the hood now, and talk to these brothers on the corner and stuff and these sisters out here that, that feel like they, their life don't count, tell them that, look, if I'm elected mayor, governor, city council, I'm going to make sure that y'all not... You know, forget if I'm elected mayor, governor, president, whatever. I'm gonna make sure a program is play a modern day Marshall Plan, whatever things like that. These people will respond in kind because our people know when somebody sincerely cares about them. But you expect these same black folks to to, to vote for you when you sitting there in one breath talking about something you want their vote. You're pulling to white racist suburban women. At the same time, you expect these black folks to vote for you and stuff. And I agree with you, Brother Claire. I We should vote because it's a tool. I vote in every election. Uh, and I, I'm like Brother Ralph. I consider myself kind of an independent and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I do vote in every election. I realize, like you said, the, 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 the importance of voting and stuff. I vote every election, whether it's mayor, off, so-called off-year elections. I vote now because I realize, like you say, it's a tool. And it's a tool that we can use because, like you said, at the end of the day, Something as simple as a zoning, like you said, getting the sidewalk done, that's all political. Mm-hmm. Everything and, and is political. And I get a good example, Brother Claire. Right here in Philadelphia, one of the most racist mayors, probably the most racist mayor we ever had, the infamous Frank Rizzo, who you're well familiar mm-hmm. with. This devil, the show, I, 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 like you was telling Brother Jay and Brother Ralph, has some important about. His son was, became a city councilman, Franny Rizzo. Now, black elected officials, and I, they just this will be a host on this local radio station, Mary Mason, legendary black female show host. Mm-hmm. We had black folks calling saying, uh, Mary, I can't get my my um but I can get that, that, that abandoned cars that went in front of my house. I can get I, I can get that abandoned house nailed up or whatever that the people using to shoot up dope or prostitution, whatever like that. I called Franny Rizzo a uh, Mary and Franny got it done. Cause even even the black elected official wouldn't even do it. But Franny got it done for him. They was boy, they was talking like Franny Rizzo was, was the next coming to Jesus or whatever. But so I bring that up only to say this, Brother Khaled. You're right. Even something as 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 mundane as you want to call it mundane it still still comes dealing with politics and stuff that could have been done without any kind of political connection. So, so policy definitely is, 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 the, is, the, is the factor that runs this economy, runs this country. So, if we're going to vote, vote wisely, but 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 don't shut yourself out of the process because 
like you said, our tax dollars will be taken out of the community, like you said, for drones to kill our people in Africa, the Muslim, African, uh, uh, Iranian, uh, whatever people, uh, this country targets and stuff like that, for drone attacks. So, so at least try to have some kind of say-so on where them resources go, where it can be done for the, bet- for the betterment of the good of our people and the betterment of humanity, as opposed to the diabolical, sinister ways of white supremacy. So, so, so voting is definitely is not the end all, but it's definitely a, a tool that can be used. And, and again, I don't want to press. I know y'all pressed for time. I just want to, you know, thanks for the for, for you coming on tonight, brother Khalid. You, you're very intelligent, brother. You, you make some very salient points and stuff, man. You you, you speak to the heart of the matter. I, I like I said, I enjoyed the, the conversation with, that you had with brother Jay and brother Ralph. It was good conversation among black men, man. I I loved it. And I, just put me on mute now. You know, listen to the rest of the show. Oh, well, thank you, brother. I appreciate your comments. I appreciate your insight. And and thank you for the shout out to the Hill District as well. I'm sure the brothers and sisters from the Hill greatly appreciate that. The Hill has been a historical bastion of of musical and creative talent. We got to also include the great August Wilson, a playwright who comes from the Hill District. Yes, 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 indeed. who, Who basically has been telling or he told the story of Black Pittsburgh over several decades and his characterizations and the life stories were centered throughout the Hill District. And, yes, you know, indeed. movies and films have been made, Broadway shows and plays and all that other good stuff. So yeah, shout out to Pittsburgh as well. Pittsburgh is my home. Uh, I was born and raised uh, in, in, in Philly. So Philly basically gave me, gave me my foundation and Pittsburgh gave me my boots and gave me my, my flight. And so I'm grateful to both cities. I'm grateful definitely for the foundation and in Pittsburgh, I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yes, so indeed. thank you very much, brother. I greatly welcome, appreciate you're your You're welcome, brother Khalid. Thank you, brother Elliot and brother Richard. Y'all, our brothers have a good night. Put my mute, Elliot, and I'll listen to the remainder. Talk to you. Thank you, sir. Brother Khalid, thanks for spending some time with us this evening, man. We got to get you back on. It's a lot of oh, things hey, happening. hey, brother. Hey, you caught me at the best time because I was... <laughs> You know, I said, okay, I ain't talk with Elliot and I ain't talk with Richard in a minute, so I kind of owe him something, so I'm going to push this other stuff to the side and get on here. And I'm glad I did, man. I mean, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you all, and I'm glad I had a chance to talk with some of the guests as well. And your guests, man, are dynamic and enlightened, uh, argumentative, as it should be, because the issues that, that all of us are dealing with, the things that we need to address, are the type of things that deserve um, an argument. Yeah, right. Some good debate. Yes. Deserve some some serious, you know, interaction and discourse. So, hey, thank you all. Thank you for all the people who called in, and thank you for your comments as well. And I hope, um, you know, that you were able to get some things from me, and I certainly got some things from you, Bridget. Uh, I definitely um, that that meeting, um, you know, with the banks. That was an interesting data point, you know. I know that y'all set up there and like was like really thrown off to hear what's that you mm. said banks and 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 not one of five hundred and seventy made a loan to anybody? Not one black person over ten years. Like I said, man, you could be oh. the head of the KKK running your local bank and you, you got to make at least one loan, you see what I'm saying, to one black person. And, and Somebody's gonna slip through. These guys didn't make not one loan to one black person. And guess what, brother? Some of these institutions are in the black community. And when I say in it, I mean like around the corner or, you know, in a main street or something, not one loan to one black person. So that meant that any black person who came into their bank, 
who might have been in the neighborhood didn't get any any type of rhythm. Matter of fact, one of the people who were um, who was actually giving a report uh, said that one of the things that they concluded is that um, a white person from another neighborhood could come into your neighborhood and say they saw some property that they wanted to purchase in the neighborhood that you were born and raised in, uh, that your parents and your grandparents own property in. They could come into that neighborhood having never lived there before, come to the bank in your neighborhood and get a mortgage to purchase a property across the street from you. You in turn could go to the same bank in the neighborhood that you were born and raised in and could not get a mortgage. That was mind blowing. And so, you know, I'm just saying that to push back a little bit against some of the comments that the brother made, you know, I think his criticism of certain institutions within the black community is a valid criticism. We could do more, whether we're talking about the church, we're talking about the masjid, whether we talk about the temple, whether we talk about the frats, the sororities, the social clubs. Uh, yeah, we all could do more in terms of, uh, you know, being more principled as far as how we deal with our monies and our resources. But when you look at the institutions that really control the flow of money and finance, the banks, the pension funds, um, you know, the investment groups, when I say the investment groups, I'm talking about the Wall Street, the broker people, right? The big time financial institutions, they really control this thing as far as the money and the resources, right? The commodities traders and markets, right? In Philly and in Chicago and other places, they control it. They control what we eat from the meats we eat to the, veg to the veggies that we eat, to the funds that we have available for mortgages, for business loans, for, for anything. Man, it's a tremendous amount of power. And the only way we're going to be able to have control over our lives is we're going to have to fight for our freedom by any means necessary, uh, whether it means politically through electoral politics, whether it means mass organizing and mass mobilizations and demonstrations and protests, um, you know, whether it means organizing self-defense groups when we need to, to push back against police brutality and to correct uh, some of the predatory elements within our own communities amongst our own people. We're going to have to do all of that. Yes. But the bottom line, I go back to what the Black Panther Party said, you know, 55 years ago. Point number one for the 10-point platform and program. We want freedom. We want the power to control the destiny of our community. And so in order to be free, you got to have power, right? And you can't you can't have, you know, freedom with no power. And you can't have power without freedom. They reinforce one another. They go hand in glove. And so I just want to leave that is that this struggle is about power. This is not a struggle for, for um, you know, looking good and just feeling good. This is not a struggle for symbolism. You know, we just want more black faces in a public office. This is not a struggle for style. You, you know, we want to look good and talk good, this is a struggle for power because ultimately we recognize that if you don't have the power, you can never be free. Somebody always control your destiny. Some other force always control the narrative and always control the outcome of whatever your life is going to look like. Brother Glid, I'll be talking to you soon. Thank you, brother. Thank <laughs> you both. I appreciate it. Yeah, and all power to the people and free the land. Talk to you. Peace. Richard, yes, yes. Come up to the conclusion of another program. Interesting dialogue. I'm glad uh, Brother Clear was able to jump on and spend some time with us. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm 
these conversations yep. are going to still come up. Uh, and I'm glad that we have the, the audience to be able to ask the questions, the pointed questions to thrash this out. I agree with him. These things need to be talked about and it's hard discussions. It's going to have to happen. Uh, but in any discussions, we need to come up with a solution to try to, uh, to act on and to move our people forward. That should be the ultimate goal of any thrashing or discussion that we have. Uh, but, uh, listen, before we leave tonight, just want to let everybody know, tune in tomorrow, seven to nine PM on time for an awakening media, the elders of Sankofa with brother Alfonso Watkins will be on tomorrow evening from seven to nine. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. And, uh, and I'm sorry, we'll be back on Sunday from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back on Sunday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace. Peace. Driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you're watching your children playing after school They seem to be
save the children To save the children 